Welcome to Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean Griffin. And yes, that was our first introduction and promo for Kingdom Crew Conference 2023. It's a virtual conference. As you saw, we have a, a wonderful lineup of our of our main speakers, as well as we have additional speakers we couldn't even fit onto the thumbnail. <clears throat> so it's going to be wonderful. Um, we really appreciate you guys uh, showing support for it. It's going to be free. There's no paywall. You don't even have to. Uh, you don't have to join or anything like that on YouTube. We don't. I don't even think we have our join set up on YouTube. But you don't have to be a Patreon member. Um, it's just going to be completely free because we'll be talking about the Bible, getting the word out, and we're excited about it. So um, you know, we want, we want to make this as accessible as possible for everyone that's that's uh, trying to consume our content and learn more about the gospel, of the kingdom, our Messiah, what He's doing for you, the resurrection, the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, the whole book. We try to help it. Make it uh, bite-sized, compactful, palatable, um, so that you can actually enjoy learning about your Creator and how you can walk with Him in love and uh, and serve Christ better. So it's we're excited about it, and um, we hope that you join us in October from the 16th to the 22nd for our Kingdom Coo Virtual Conference 2023. Um, you're welcome to share the videos. We have a, its own video on, on the channel if you're welcome to share that and get the word out, um, and that way. You know, we're going to, Lord willing, we'll, we'll be able to reach a lot of people with the truth. we got a lot of a lot of good speakers that are lined up, and uh, we're excited to do it for the first time. So we also want to let people know that you can download the Kingdom of Context app. That's an easy way to stay updated on things about the conference. Um, also, you can get notified when we go live on YouTube, as well as articles we put up for you to read, hopefully encouraging your faith, and even new announcements. Or we also have a fellowship finder. You can find other people in your area. Um, we just uploaded a new feature where if you're a ministry or a business, you can verify yourself. You can do that in the settings tab. You can go down and click verify, fill out your, your socials, your website, that kind of stuff, however you want to be contacted as your business or ministry. And then you will actually have your own digital card pop up whenever you're on the Fellowship Finder or if you comment on one of the articles or announcements in the comment section and someone clicks on your name, your own little info card will pop up so they can find your ministry or business super fast. So we're excited. Um, that's that's already been released on the app as a new update, and uh, we're we're still working more things into it. And so, in addition to the conference, well, I should say at the conference that we'll be doing this year, um, we're working on a few surprises that uh, very no one knows about for the most part. Um, there's I think maybe one other person, a few people know, but but uh, for the most part, hardly anyone knows about some of these surprises we're working on. So um, don't miss it. Tell people about it. I think it's going to be great. And uh, we got a lot of fun stuff that uh, coming down the pike. So we want to thank you guys for being here tonight. Um, I had a, a, a woman reach out to me from uh, Greece. She is a, a, a believer. I think she was raised with the perspective of God, but she just now has actively um, renewed her faith and started learning the Bible and is, and is consuming as much as she can. And she found our channel and heard us say some interesting things, and she wanted to ask me directly about it. She has her own channel on BitChutes called Free Float, and she, uh, she, I'm pretty sure she said she's a, a trained psychotherapist, um, and she's doing this as a hobby on the side, and she interviews people um, about their experiences in their life, and she is from Greece, and I thought, you're going to hear this during the interview, but I thought it was very interesting that she um, was raised in her perspective of Christianity, which was Eastern Orthodox, Greek Eastern Orthodox. She's always had a Greek Septuagint. And she has it in the original Greek language. So I thought that was fascinating. Um, that was her perspective. And that Septuagint actually has the Apocrypha in it, which was taken out of the American Bibles. 
um, over time, or I should say it was published out. Maybe taken out is the wrong word. To take out implies um, as if there was some big meeting amongst churches and they decided to remove them. That's not the, That's not actually how it went down. It was more like it was published out of our, mer- our modern American Bibles. Uh, publishers picked up an edited version that, that removed the Apocrypha from the most dominant versions of the Bible that was being printed in the earliest 20th century. And so therefore we have what, what I'd call a, a, an edited modern Bible, right? We're, we're missing books that used to be in there for over 1,700 years. So, um, but she, that's her perspective. She grew up with that. She didn't realize that we have, you know, edited Bibles over here compared to her. And uh, interesting. She has a, an interesting perspective. I, th- I think you'll really enjoy this uh, interview tonight because she's going to interview me and ask me some challenging questions. And I hope that I can do them justice. So I want to thank everyone that's here. I hope that you guys like, share, and subscribe if you haven't already. Hit that bell. Now's the time to do it. And uh, without further ado, let's jump into this interview. I try to I try to uh, put them in some logical order. Maybe they're they're not exactly. So it might seem that I'm I'm jumping from you know one point to another. I'm sorry about that. It's just that it's I've okay. watched I've watched it's them. all connected. It's all connected, absolutely. Mm. And um I try to watch as many of your videos. I think I've watched all of your debates. I don't think I've missed anything and any and other so, videos. So and, you know, every time I was watching something, and I still have hair. Yes, all of it. Yeah, you didn't. <laughs> you didn't pull it out watching my debates. No, no, no. Because wh- why would I? No, no, no. My point is that every time I was watching a video or, or a debate, I would, you know, write down a question. That at that point, that's why it's maybe it's it seems all over the place. But as you said, it's all connected. Okay, so I'm going to also start my recording, and um, I will ask you to introduce yourself if if that's okay with you. I I don't sure. like introducing. Okay. Recording. Okay, started. So hello, Son. Hi. Hello. Thanks How are for. You, Maria? I am. I am well. I'm very well. I'm very glad. I'm. I'm. You know, I'm here chatting with you. Um, okay, before we start, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Sean Griffin with Kingdom in Context. We have a YouTube channel we've had for about five years. We try to teach the Bible in context, try to draw people's attention to what we believe was the dominant message of our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and that was the gospel of the kingdom. He spoke about the coming kingdom of God, peace on the earth through a reign where there's a physical, literal kingdom that descends to the earth and uh, that is preceded by the resurrection of the saints and something called the day of the Lord in which uh, the Messiah returns with a bunch of warrior angels in order to rout out the corrupt and wicked Kings of the earth, as well as unclean spirits and a rebellious angel commonly called Satan. So once those are removed, there's a, um, a kingdom that's established and peace is on the earth for a thousand years. And this was the dominant message of all the prophets, but also of our Messiah. So this is what we, we titled our, Channel Kingdom and Context. Yeah. So, when did you, when did you start formulating this um, understanding of yours? Because it is different than um, most Christians understand. It, it um, seems it sounds kind of unique. I haven't heard anyone have you know having that wholesome 
um, concrete, <clears throat> if you understand what I mean, you know, understanding of um, of uh, the Bible. You have a very, it's like telling a story. It's like uh, watching a movie from uh, the beginning to uh, to the end. You have, you know, the all the plot, mm. all, you know, everything. When did you start uh, formulating this understanding? Uh, probably about seven or eight years ago when I decided that I wanted to adopt my life to 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 be as close to to Jesus as possible. And I know that sounds like a cliche statement because that's kind of what all Christians are encouraged to do, right? To be yeah. like Jesus. But in a in a very literal way, I thought to myself, well, if if I'm going to be if I'm going to stop doing this destructive sin in my life, which causes all these problems, and I adopt my behavior my behavior more and more to be like uh, the Messiah, well, then I should probably know how he thinks. I should, you know, I need to get into the brain of the Messiah to see how he thinks. And I, th- I said, well, the gospels are, are wonderfully, a lot of information for me to see how he thinks. And I started studying that. And I just within my own mind, I thought, what if I could just, since he had an, a good answer for all these different situations, I thought, well, what if I could just memorize all the words of Jesus and then I would have the same type of wisdom and awareness to be able to handle all these types of situations. And then as I started delving into that, his message actually became more and more clear. And verses like Luke chapter four, verses 43 and 44 really started to stick out to me to where he he said that he must go and preach the gospel of the kingdom because that's why he was sent. And I thought, oh, well, that seems a pretty important statement. You know, and I was like, wait a minute, what's the gospel of the kingdom? You know, I had no mm-hmm. clue about what it was. And so then as I started looking at his descriptions of it, I started to realize, oh, wait a minute, he's he's talking about like a literal thing. Like this isn't some metaphoric, esoteric, just state of mind. This is more than that. This is a literal kingdom where people will interact with the father and the son in their house. This is why in John 14, he, he was talking about, you know, I'll go to prepare a place for you and were not so I wouldn't told you I'm going to come back and receive you to me. He's trying to you know encourage his his disciples that uh, he was going to return, was going to go away, and then he was going to return and bring them back into his house. And I thought that's not a metaphor, like that's literal. So then uh, I started to realize that uh, the kingdom of heaven is what it's dominantly called in the book of Matthew. But then once like the books, the the other gospels like Mark, Luke, and John. Um, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. And I thought, okay, so this, there is multiple names for this. There's like a synonym use of names for this term, for this idea of the the house of God that's coming to earth. And then I saw obviously in Revelation, it's literally called the New Jerusalem that descends out of heaven uh, down to the earth. And then I started to say, well, what what if the Old Testament prophets talked about this too? And, and then lo and behold, they do. It's actually referred to as Zion in the Old Testament. And it talks about the the wonderful land of peace where all the nations will gather and come to the house of Zion, the house of the Lord, so they can learn how to live in peace with each other. And that this is an important message that was being taught by everybody. And so to me, that helped me find consistency in all of the books of the Bible. Because even Abraham in Genesis 15 is promised that he will inherit the land. He and his descendants who are in the covenant will inherit this land forever. Now, that's pretty hard to do if you're dead. So it's like, do I do I take these words seriously or do I think, okay, what does the word inherit mean? Well, an inheritance, you have to be alive to receive an inheritance. And an inheritance is a granting of possession or property. And I thought, okay, well, what's he inheriting? Well, then 
thankfully, I have books like Hebrews, which directly tells you in chapter 11, 10 through 14, Abraham looked forward to a far distant country, a heavenly country, whose architect, who has a city, whose architect and builder is God. And this is the, the promised New Jerusalem or Zion that's promised to be coming down out of the heaven to the land to sit on the exact place where Abraham was promised between the Euphrates and the Nile. And I thought, oh, well, that, that all lines up very well. It's mm. a physical, literal place. So then I started saying, but that means you've got a piece of land that's not currently here that's coming to down through the sky. How in the world does that happen? And that led me to biblical cosmology. Flat earth. Uh, I like to call it firmament, firmament enclosed earth. Yeah. Because there's obviously topography, right? Hills, mountains, valleys, ravines, depths yeah. of ocean, right? Um, yeah. Chasms. But um, but ultimately, it's an enclosed creation, which makes sense with actual science, because you can't have air pressure without a barrier. Really? <laughs> yeah. I thought there were particles colliding up there that um, prevented the air from being... It's an interesting packing. point. Yeah, I know. It's an interesting point. Did you know that uh, the noble gases, things like hydrogen, helium, oxygen, argon, neon, the most common noble gases that science has found and, and documented, um, even nitrogen, which is supposedly the most dominant gas, yes. up to 79% of our atmosphere, you know that all of them ignore the downward pull that's commonly called gravity? Yes. Like uh, so where do they go? balloons. Right. They So they ignore the downward pull. So then how would we ever have an atmosphere? Have no idea. <laughs> exactly. You, you need a container. So the, the, just like a balloon, it, it's it's the only reason that air stays inside the balloons because it's contained. Because those those gashes, uh, the, the law of second thermodynamics is that you know the high pressure will always try to equalize itself to low pressure. So the moment you pop that balloon, that uh, contain contained pressure will equalize itself into the greater atmosphere around it. So yeah. this is where um, I, it started me on an investigative journey of, well, what does the Bible actually describe as where I live? If I believe I was created by the creator of the Bible, by God, um, and he, you know, sent his son to be my savior so I could have eternal life and live with he and his son and, and the angels in their house. That's awesome. That's, a, that's an amazing story that no other religion on earth has ever offered to mankind. No. So that, no, that in itself so. is, a, is a unique concept, right? <laughs> it's not about being good enough to be reincarnated, possibly in some kind of caste system, right? It's not about uh, attaining or earning the favor of Zeus. You know, it's not about what? any, it's, it's simply, it's a, it's a wonderful message. He spent all this time to send his son to give me the opportunity to live with him forever. And he promises that through the resurrection. So I was like, well, what, how, what's it going to look like when I actually get there? Right. And that's where I had to start studying the creation descriptions. Um. Okay. I have one question, which is not on uh, my list of questions, but just now I'm um, listening to you. Um, I've I've heard people, and I've actually interviewed one um, one guy who uh, thinks himself of um, being um, a Christian. He believes in um, uh, Jesus and everything, but he but he also believes in reincarnation and several other new age um, concepts. And I asked him, how do you, you know, reconcile these uh, things? And he says, everything is in, in the Bible, but the Bible talks about reincarnation. And I'm not sure, but I think he was referring to 
um, Jesus at some point saying, asking his, um, uh, I don't know who, who I, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I don't remember. But Jesus saying, "Who do you think you are? Do you think I'm, I'm um, uh, the prophet, um, Elijah, or um, something like that?" Does that ring any? Do you do you know? Well, in Mark chapter eight, he asks his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, "Who do you think? Who do you say I am?" And Peter yeah. answers him, "You are the Messiah, this, the one sent by God." I remember that. But did he did he say before that? Do you think I'm I'm um you know I'm some prophet from from well, uh, uh, John's disciples, did... John the Baptist's disciples, at one point came to ask Yeshua. Who do you, who are you, or are you the one that we're expecting? And uh, he says, yes, I am the prophet, the one that you've expected. And and then no, at another point, you may be mixing yeah. a few ideas together because at Maybe. another point, he tells his disciples and the Pharisees that John the Baptist was the one prophesied in Micah in the Old Testament to, to come, or excuse me, Malachi, to come as in the, in the, in the authority of the prophet Elijah. And so... Um, it doesn't teach say that reincarnation. Again. Can you can you say that again? That the last um... sure. So in the in the book of Malachi, it, prof yes. it prophesies that Elijah will come and turn the hearts of fathers and sons back towards each other, which yes. is which is uh, an idea of repentance of reconciliation back to God's law. There's it, it gets rid of the strife and animosity among families, and people start living in love and peace with each other again. And this is what we see fulfilled with John the Baptist, who preached repentance to the people and had a great response to him. So much so that the Pharisees didn't like him, and that uh, he was a strong prophet in the days before, right before Yeshua started his ministry, and that's why John the Baptist was out there baptizing people in the Jordan River and and encouraging people to come back to the law of God. And so this was, uh, and Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of all the prophets that had come before Jesus. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But but why why would they phrase it like that? That the spirit of Elijah will come back. In the same way, it's not the spirit of Elijah, but it's that in the, the prophet Elijah would come back. It's the same way that it talks about how um, in Ezekiel chapter 37, David would sit on a throne and in, in, after the resurrection, right? And it's not saying literally David himself is going to be made king of Israel above Jesus of Nazareth. It's saying the moniker of David. So in the ancient world, the ancient cultures, they used to take the name of a great king and they would use it again. Right. This is why you see in like Mesopotamia or the Assyrians or Babylonians, you see people like Sargon the first, Sargon the second. You see Nebuchadnezzar the first, Nebuchadnezzar the second. You see Artaxerxes, you know, and Xerxes mm -hmm. one and two. That's that's why they would do that is because you would have um, this idea of they would take someone that was great and had a lot of esteem by the public and then use that moniker, which was the symbol of their office. Which is the name of the, that 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 office became associated with the one of the greatest and most respected people who held that office. So in the same way that Yeshua, he is going to be king over all the earth in the throne of David. John the Baptist was called the greatest of all the prophets in the office of Elijah. Does that make sense? Yes. So you're saying that um, that's. Um... He was referring to to John the Baptist, but he'll come well, we'd, back. We'd have to figure out exactly which which verse you're asking about, but I'm saying as a general premise, there's no reincarnation taught in the scriptures. 
Hebrews 9.26 tells us that there's death appointed to man once, and then the judgments. Now, there's resurrection that are special miracles that happen, and there's 10 different examples of resurrection in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Now, the first resurrection, or the resurrection of glorification, is different than those 10 examples of resurrection listed throughout the scriptures. So like when Jesus was raised from the dead, that what 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the first fruits of the first resurrection event. This is something that's different where you, you don't come back to your normal fleshly body that decays and still has knee joint problems and your forgetfulness and you, you struggle to, to do what's right. No, no, you get glorified into a body that's promised from the covenant where you always will do what's right and you never will die. This is what Jesus got at the resurrection. It's the fulfillment of the covenant. So that's a that's called the first resurrection concept versus a normal resurrection, which there's 10 examples of that in the scriptures. It's not a reincarnation idea. Um, and it's definitely um, it's definitely not dependent upon anything that you can do. It, it's literally a gift of God for resurrection. So as opposed to what ancient cultures used to teach as far as what kind of behavior and what kind of obedience you show to the king or to the gods, depending upon how you got reincarnated. And a lot of people don't realize, but reincarnation itself started in ancient India, and it was only pertaining in the beginning when they first started it, teaching this, it was only pertaining to the gods of India. It didn't pertain to the regular people. Over time, as different rulers took over, they adopted the idea down to the citizens and said, if you're a good citizen, you'll get reincarnated. But originally it was never, it was never pertaining to people. It was always to the quote unquote gods. And the, the, the Bible describes those gods as what we would call um, unclean spirits, which this is where you have the examples in the New Testament where they they can possess different bodies. You see, so do you, do you mm -hmm. see how that be a plausible way of why they would talk about reincarnation? If if an unclean spirit possessed the body of this person, and then fifty years later that same unclean spirit possesses a new body. Well, they think that that person from 50 years ago came back, but really he's just been influenced by an, a demonic or an unclean spirit the whole time between two different people. Are you, so let me, let me back up a little bit. Are you familiar with what the Bible teaches about unclean spirits as far as where yes. they come from? So they come yes. from before the flood. Yeah. Yeah. And they used to have bodies of giants, but then they were disembodied at the flood and they no longer have a physical body, but now they're just a spiritual force that tries to oppress, attack mankind, and in some extreme examples, possess mankind. Mm -hmm. Depends on what the person allows. And so we have the authority to get them out of our life, or we have the authority to let them in our life. And so this is where um, they, they are going to be on the earth until the second coming of Messiah, when they'll be fully and forever taken off the earth. So this is, um, so this is, in my understanding, this is where the whole idea of reincarnation even came from amongst the cultures outside of Israel. From these uh, demons, you're saying that other cultures um, believe they're gods, they're, and they're because rulers, they will keep they manifesting right. again and again, they got the okay, gotcha. Right. Yeah, cool. Fine, I'm gonna delve into my <laughs> list of questions. Yes. My first and most important question because you i hear you keep a ref you know keep going back to this so i figure it's it's really important the sacrifices 
which um, oh, sure. it's a new con- it's a new concept. Maybe you know what? Maybe before I before I start, um, you know, with my questions, maybe I should tell you just just a little bit about me, so you understand. Okay. Um, where I am, where I'm at, and why I asked um, to chat with you. Um, I'm a very new Christian. I mean, I'm I'm baptized. You know, when I was six months old, I'm I'm Greek Orthodox on you know okay. on paper. All right. So, but I wasn't really, I wasn't really a Christian. I mean, I, I, I had no interaction with the Bible or or any of that. I was very, very deep into the New Age stuff. Like I studied astrology and tarot reading and all the stuff. And very, very recently, like three years ago, I, I started, you know, realizing that something is wrong, something is going Something is awfully wrong with um, <laughs> this world. And um, uh, from one conspiracy to to the next, I discovered that you know the Earth is not a globe, which which I believe that it's the biggest lie they have sold to us. I mean, every other lie doesn't compare to to that and how they keep sustaining this. So that was huge. And uh, after that, uh, after I understood that, you know, it, it's not a globe, there, there is no space, then I understood, okay, then we must be created. You know, this system, since it's a system, an enclosed system, as you say, someone must have, you know, created it, couldn't <laughs> just pop into existence. That, and, and, and then I realized, okay, so many, uh, you know, so many lies, um, about you know our, our our society, you know the way our society works, everything everything is a lie. And then I said, okay, if if they're lying about everything, then why wouldn't they lie, you know, about spiritual stuff, about you know deeper uh, deeper things, not just um, our banking system and our education and our history and you know physics, but you know deeper things, spiritual things. Why wouldn't they lie about that also? So then I. I said, okay, what are they pushing uh, through the mainstream, spiritual-wise? A new age. They're pushing new age. They're not pushing... Uh, and, and what are they trying to censor? They're trying to censor God, but not, not every God. Bibles, the Bible's God, the Old mm-hmm. Testament's God. That's what they're trying to censor. And that, for me, was the biggest proof that it must be true. Then if they're, you know, if they really... Don't want you to. If if I'm still feeling um, a bit weird to to tell people I know or I, I, I they knew me, you know, for all my life, I I still feel weird to tell them. You know what? I'm start. I have started reading the Bible, and uh, you know, I I I believe in you know in Jesus, and I feel weird. So if 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 I grew up in a system where where telling people or accepting that I believe in Jesus and God makes me stupid or ignorant or that that means that says something because I don't think that any any other denomination or any other religion feels the same way. I don't think a Muslim feels the same way. I don't feel I don't think a Hindu feels weird saying, yeah, 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 I believe I believe my scriptures. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, they're they're pushing Hinduism. They're they're mm-hmm. pushing, you know, um, 
Um, in America, they push Hinduism in very unique ways that Americans don't recognize. I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with it. We talk about it on our channel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm also familiar with it because I had a few interviews with um, a woman who used to teach um, yoga. Hmm. And she came to, to, you know, certain realizations. So she has explained Hinduism and yoga and all that very, very well. So, yeah, I'm familiar. Anyway, I, I don't know whether I, I, I explained myself, but this is my proof. This was my proof that um, it must be true. If it's censored okay. and if, if, you know, so it, I'm, I'm, um, I'm very new to this, but because I was, I'm craving to, to understand what's, you know, what's real and what's not, I have been doing a lot of research. So, so in, in, in six months, I have devoured <laughs> content and content and content. And, um, I see that um, many people who claim they're, they're Christians, many people who claim they they read their Bible, you know, religiously, <laughs> um, that they are being guided by the Father or the Spirit, um, they come to different conclusions, completely sure. different understandings. Yeah, and, it depends on how you approach the Bible. Yeah, and everyone, but every one of them believes, you know, that he he's um, he's closer to the truth. Everyone believes that, sure. and everyone believes that they're being guided by the Holy Spirit. They ask, you know, they ask the Father, they pray to the Father for guidance, and and the Father guided them to this understanding, which is completely different than yours, you know, or other people. Well, I haven't always held mine. You know, I've been a believer since nineteen ninety seven. So here we are, what is that, 26 years. And when I first became a believer, in probably the first 14 or 15 years, um, I didn't have anywhere near the understanding that I do today um, because I didn't read the Bible a lot. I read some of it. I I knew where certain parts of it were, but I didn't truly study it um, on a regular basis. And I went to church hoping that they would help me study it, and that didn't happen very well. They that, didn't, that wasn't a good experience. And so I met a lot of people that, yes, they would say, oh, I feel the spirit telling me this, or I feel the spirit leading me to do that. And then you start to see some of them, their actions lined up with what you see as an example in the Bible. And sometimes it produced good fruit and other times it didn't, you know, it just depends on how, you know, what, how they were filtering what they believed was God leading them into doing something. And so me, I felt God was leading me into researching uh, the story of Noah, a long time ago, back in 2007, and I had some unique things that happened to me um, that I felt was God talking to me, but it, it wasn't a good, clear understanding like I have today. It was just little pieces here and there that that inter that got me uh, on the on the journey. Right? It it teased me enough so that I would be interested to to go and research more. And so it's in my experience from everyone I've ever met who's a Christian, and from my own life after 26 years, um, I don't, I, no one ever gets like just this moment where an angel shows up and says, here's the entire story and all the details. You've got them actually already in the book, but so many people struggle with maybe language translations or 
uh, colloquial phrases, or I should say, I don't, do you know the word colloquial um, in, in yeah, English? Yeah. yeah. So like they struggle with different types of figures of speech um, because in America, at least I should say the educational system, the public education system is not very good. So a lot of people, um, I'm, I jokingly call myself a, a, a Bible nerd, right? So like I, I obsess about learning the Bible and I love to write and I love words and I love reading. And so that's, that's helped me. The average person's not like that. And so when they get to the Bible and they read a few verses or a chapter and they see a bunch of stuff they don't understand, they get discouraged and they put it down. And then they look over here at the TV or at the preacher and hopefully he's going to explain it better. You see what I mean? So then it's, then you're getting all this secondhand information through. Yeah. Yeah. I think I understand what, what you're saying here. That, the filters um, of preachers. They don't rely on, uh, on scriptures. They, they rely on scripts, but they also rely on other people, on scholars or other people's interpretation. Well, of that's right. Our scripture. priests, theologians, um, people that uh, may not, they can't vary like the average person, you and I, We'd have to research who the person is that's making these claims. That's a you know a well-respected priest or pastor or theologian, and to see how they came to their conclusions to make these claims about the Bible of their interpretation. And so I just I, I saw a lot of that, and I I got frustrated, and I said, well, what if I just went back to the basics of mm -hmm. reading comprehension? And this is why we added the word context in our kingdom in context. Is I said, well, what I know how to read. And I, I look for context when I read. So that means I look up the definitions of words and I look for the, I read the whole chapter or maybe the chapter before it or after it. Or since the, since the Bible is a collection of many books put together, I thought to myself, well, then if I read about the resurrection in this book, in the book of John, and I don't understand how it's being talked about, but I see the resurrection being talked about also in Timothy or in first Corinthians well, maybe if I compared all three of those together, I'll get a better understanding of the idea as it's described. And that's how you find a greater context to an idea. So look up the definitions of the words, read the whole chapter, and then compare its use in other chapters. And then you get a, you quickly will come to a much faster and deeper understanding that's clear. And it's not, you don't rely on the interpretation of some man. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Okay. It's not, it's not so sexy at all. It's not attractive. It's not, it's not like some special revelation from God. It's not like some um, unique or wonderful thing. It's literally the basics and no one likes doing the basics of anything. Everyone wants to be advanced and, uh, and act like they've got it figured out. Well, it make, it made sense to me, uh, son, because um, I'm highly suspicious. So um, your method made sense to me because you didn't, uh, you don't rely on that. Uh, what other people say. I, I, I don't trust people anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start because we will never end. <laughs> okay. Sacrifices. I don't, I don't, I, I, I struggle with um, the sacrifices. <laughs> with the concept When you were of, practicing of the new sacrificing. age, what did they call sacrifices in the new age? I we didn't have sacrifices in um, in the new age I was practicing. There were no sacrifices. What what do you mean? what type of higher deities, ascended masters, or gods did you actually show worship to in the new age? I wasn't worshiping worshiping any 
ascended masters or um, um, deities, I was worshiping myself. Okay. So, but you do acknowledge there's people that practice the new age that do ascribe um, veneration and worship to ascended masters. And they, they yes, look to get I messages think, from. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, deities. that's, that's um, to me, that always, that was. No, that was. Also okay. So, so you practice more of a humanistic. Materialistic yes, humanistic, exactly, because I'm a psychologist, okay. I'm a psychotherapist, I studied, you know, uh, the types of psychotherapy that I have studied are the humanistic uh, kinds, and okay. then, you know, astrology, which was also about me analyzing myself, and my therapy was well, you know, analyzing you, so you can you can become your own authority, so me, that's, okay. I think that's the, that, that's the center point of the new age you yourself it's about yourself you you are your own authority everything starts and ends with you okay and okay except so, for the no fact God. that you said astrology astrology is also about you it yeah, is I, but where do you think yeah. the energies come from from uh, the, the stars okay and from, they affect the stars, your life Yes, but you're one with the stars, you understand? Since you're one yeah. with the universe, you're one. It's this oneness. I see. We're one. So, you know, they're, if they're gods, then we're also gods because we're, we're, we're stardust. So we are, you know, we are the same so thing. So then the, the stars yeah. never affect your life? Is that what you're saying? They, according to astrology, yes, they are. I mean, you know, you're studying them religiously. But but not just studying them to know knowledge, but you're saying this, the influences of the stars does mm. does not astrology teach that the influences of the stars actually Absolutely. affect your life? Okay. Absolutely. They, so then there's are... power coming outside of you to affect you. Yes and no. Yes and no. Because as you as I told you in um in the humanistic um umbrella, you you are one. You're one. So yes and no. Yes, it's coming okay. from the stars, but you're made of stardust. So you're you're the same substance. You're connected. Okay. Everything is connected. <clears throat> even though even though no one knows what a star is made of, because they've never actually been able to touch it, test it, or see it. Yeah, but they, <laughs> you know, they claim they do. I mean, uh, exactly right. They claim they get the spectrometry and they can just look. Oh, the light shows us there must be this yes, much but nickel, so if, this much if plutonium, you, this much. Yes, if you can go back, I don't know uh, how many years is that you came to an understanding that there is no space. How yeah. many years? Uh, Twenty fifteen. So okay, eight years. So eight years. So if mm -hmm. you can remember yourself eight years ago, you never questioned. Unless no, no, no. We, we never questioned. I mean, it's right. it's beyond the human understanding that they can they can be teaching us since you know the, the day we open our eyes that they can be teaching us these things and they have no idea. It would never cross your mind. I mean, it's so huge. Right. It's so it's huge. All theory. It's all speculation. Yeah. So it, it it doesn't cross your your mind. It never crossed my mind that they had no idea. <laughs> they have no idea. Do you know they, they anyway. believe they proved relativity because of a single picture in 1919 by a, a British astronomer? At least I that. didn't know. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, I can, I can be, you know, I, I can still be surprised. At least I didn't know, really, from a Isn't picture. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, something that changed, <laughs> supposedly changed physics 
for the last hundred years over a single picture was the supposed tipping point where they could see shift because of an eclipse and some of the light coming around the eclipse and and that they believe that proved relativity and space-time the curvature of space-time isn't that amazing just one Nothing picture amazes me anymore. from a, from a camera in 1919 like a, an old camera right so yeah it's amazing what is is built in society based off of really bad information you know and that happens in religion too so this yes. is where we over over time um churches built tradition on really bad information yeah. just like you get to about the second or third century ad and you start seeing the uh the church starting to codify a leadership structure and they start appointing bishops and popes. And this is before the Catholic sticks over, so the original Eastern Orthodox, right? And then they start in, infusing something, uh, a form of mysticism into their teachings. And you can see this Me throughout crazy. time. They, they have it in their writings. Well, even well, they wouldn't attribute it to a specific Roman god or, or any deity, but it's just an interpretive method on how they view the scriptures. So instead of go, going back to the Old Testament and looking at the foundation of where all these ideas came from for things like, the resurrection and the kingdom to come and how you walk out your discipleship with Jesus, they started taking and infusing mysticism into this approach, which comes from Gnosticism. And it's an idea of under getting it closer. It, it's actually something we talk about on our channel that it, it relates, it relates back to um, Aristotelian theology. And, um, and it's, and it's a concept of um, it's a apophatic theology is what it's called in some circles. And it's an idea of negative or negation theology. And this became really popular in the 5th century AD by a lot of church fathers that then carried over even into Judaism outside of the Christian church. And it's an idea that goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. And it's an idea of speaking about the gods in a way that you, you can never truly describe them or understand them. And I'm giving a very, for, for anyone out there that might like theology and uh, just, just know that I'm giving a very brief summary on this idea, but it's, it's a concept of of wanting to talk about the divine, talk about God, but not wanting to describe him in specific terms because you might somehow dishonor him. So instead, they use negative attribute of traits and qualities to describe God and simultaneously saying you can never really understand God. And so this type of infused teaching came into the church and good-hearted people like you and I in the 4th century AD who wanted to know God would get to a priest or a bishop and hear, well, you can't really know God, so just trust us that we're telling you the Bible is, is the way it is. And so it discouraged over long periods of time, and it got worse once the, once the Roman Catholics took over. But it got worse as far as this type of uh, enforcement of discouraging people from reading the Bible and just telling them to trust the bishops and the priests and the, the church theologians and listen to their interpretation of the Bible. So there's been a renaissance in the past 40, 50 years of people coming back to just wanting to understand the Bible on their own because they see so many conflicting teachings from, from churches and from pastors and theologians. As you've seen me do interviews, right? When I interview pastors and I have, sometimes they turn into debates <laughs> because I put the scriptures on screen and I say, here's what the scriptures say, but your church or you teach something different. Can you help me reconcile why you teach something different? And then they read the same words that I'm reading and they try to instantly reinterpret them. You know what I mean? And so 
we have a huge difference in reading comprehension. And I'm sitting there going, well, that's not the, you've probably heard me say this many times. I say, that's not the definition of that word. Yes. And then I put the definition of the word on screen and then they still don't want to accept it. And it gets awkward, right? Because I, you never want to embarrass somebody. It's not my goal, but the goal is to call them to an account. If they're going to say they have authority to teach you the words of God, well, they need to be held accountable for what they're teaching, right? So otherwise they're going to breed confusion and we don't want confusion. I don't know whether that's um, helpful for them because I think whatever they they can reconcile um, with um, the actual definition, uh, I think they're just uh, calling it, you know, oh, it's a metaphor. It's not literal. So right. the definition doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't. But, but the people matter. see that that's a, that's a cop out. That's an excuse. Most people see yeah. that. So to answer your question about sacrifices, mm -hmm. this all relates to, to the answer, right? Which is over time, the church started getting bad understandings built off bad definitions of scripture and then building tradition on top of that for many hundreds of years. Part of those was there was a friction in the early churches between the, the, the end of the first century AD up into the, you know, fourth, fifth century um, believers were being persecuted both by the Romans as well as rabbis of Judaism. So it got to the point where the first century believers were mostly Jewish people. And they were then kicked out of their own synagogues by the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they, the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejected Christ, right? They didn't like Jesus. And so the, the new believers of Jesus who were raised as Israelites, they started having to just meet at their houses to talk about Jesus Christ and read the scriptures together. We see this in Acts 17 where Paul goes to the Bereans. And then you have people like Paul and Timothy and Barnabas and other people that go out into the Mediterranean to, you know, Macedonia and uh, Italy and uh, Britannica or you know, what's now modern day in Spain and, and Britain. And they started to try to uh, evangelize. Right. And so then you get a lot of other people that were not raised with the mindset of the scriptures are being brought into the faith, but they, they're not able to go to the synagogues and hear the Old Testament read on a regular basis. So then they're doing the best they can with the letters being passed around by Paul and the gospel letters, like from John. I think John was the first gospel written in AD 55. And so they have this collection of scriptures. They get passed around over time. And then that gets formalized in around the middle of the second century AD. Okay. And there's still a division between uh, the synagogues of the Jewish people versus the now mix of Jewish Christians and Christians from many other nations who are trying to learn about the faith and believe in Christ. And so there's this division that starts rising and they have, they, they start moving away from the things that the Bible had clearly says. And because the temple's already been destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans they can't actively go and celebrate the feast. Like right now I'm celebrating the feast of unleavened bread, but I can't go according to the actual truth. I'm just celebrating as a memorial, as a practice, but I can't do it to the letter, right? Because there's no standing temple. There's no priests ministering at that temple where I would go and bring my, my uh, tithe to the temple for God to be, then that tithe was just used to be redistributed to the poor and the widows and the orphans. And so, like, I can't go and, and participate in that process because uh, over time, 
Yahweh prophesied that the, the temple that was in Israel would be destroyed because of their rebelliousness. And then there would not be another one until the Messiah returns again. So we're in this time period that the Bible talks about calls the, the time of the Gentiles. Um, and so this is where without that perspective, you and me, we don't have that perspective. It's not like in, in the book of, of Acts in, in, in chapter 21. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. And then Paul comes back from one of his missionary journeys. And then he goes and speaks with all the disciples in Jerusalem. And they tell him, they're like, hey, man, we heard some crazy stuff about you. And they're like, we, we heard people saying that you're telling people not to keep the law of Moses or the our customs, like what uh, that you're going out and making converts, but teach them something different. And Paul's like, no, that's, I'm not doing that. But that's what the Pharisees were saying about him. They were lying about him because they wanted to get Paul, you know, disbarred. They wanted to get him out. They wanted to destroy his reputation so people wouldn't take him seriously because he was making converts everywhere he went. So when he comes back to Jerusalem and, and they didn't have the internet in those days, right? They didn't have cell phones. So like they had to wait to be in the same room again so they could clear up any confusions. So then James and, and John and Peter and the elders, they had to ask Paul, like, what's this? We heard about you and prove to us that this isn't true and go to the temple and do a vow offering both for yourself and these other four gentlemen and pay for everyone's offerings. Well, that that's a vow offering from Numbers chapter six in the Old Testament. And that, and that was an active temple. This is after Jesus already ascended. This is possibly a decade or uh, yeah, an entire 10 years after Jesus already ascended. And so there's a still an active temple with priest ministering. The, the disciples use it in this test to make sure Paul is teaching proper theology. And then, and Paul proves that he does by paying for the animals that would be donated to the temple for the sacrifice. So they could do this dedication offering to prove that he was dedicated to Yahweh and to the law of God which is the discipleship standard for being a disciple of Yahweh and, and his son, Yeshua. And so this is where um, that's, if you and I lived in that perspective, we would never think that somehow sacrifices were a bad thing or they're somehow a burden or that it was just part of everyday life. It was just a part of like, this is how you give resources to a temple who has priests who manage those resources to be dispersed to people in need. That was the whole point of the temple in the Old Testament. It was never, it was never in vain. There was never, it was never pointless uh, bringing of animals to just kill them in vain. It was never about that. It was about, for one, there was different contexts for for the different sacrifices that are listed in Leviticus. Some of them were meals given to God. Some of them were meals that the priests ate of, and they were given to the families of the priests so they could have sustenance to maintain the temple and have their food taken care of, their groceries basically. And then others were, were for like feast days or Sabbaths and that both the priests and the people also partook in what was brought forward. And it was considered a fellowship meal. So this is like, the, that's why the tabernacle of, of Yahweh or the, the temple of God was referred to as his house. And it was a replica of the one in heaven, but it was a small replica of his house. And the idea was that you would go to his house with food to create a meal and enjoy a fellowship offering with him. And that's how you would have peace with God. And what about um, the same sacrifices? You know, sacrificing for um, the atonement of um, our sins. Yeah, that, that was taken care of by a priest. So you, you would bring forward your confession as well as whatever was required of what kind of animal was required. And then the priest would receive your confession, your words, as well as the animal, and then go make a meal out of it. And the priest would eat of that meal. 
So this is what our heavenly priest, Yeshua, who's made a high priest in the order of Melchizedek and is ministering in heaven's temple. This is the same job description, the same process. So that's why in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, or I'll start in verse 8, where it says that he who claims he's without sin is a liar. But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he, Yeshua, Jesus, is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he does that through a process of the priesthood, because that's what's outlined. So think of it like this. This is where when you see me interviewing pastors and when this topic comes up, sometimes I, I come back to the question, which seems like a very silly question, but I come back to the question of, I know that we've been told for hundreds of years that sacrifices was a burden that Jesus did away with, but that's not yes. technically correct. But let me ask you this. If since the Bible says that he's ascended to heaven and it directly tells you in like many different places, he's in a temple in heaven as a high priest. And the Bible has already given us definitions with lots and lots of prophets, what a priest does in a temple. And if that's consistent, do we believe that heaven in this temple in heaven where he is, do we believe that's a real place? So that'd be the question I have for you just, you know, in a playful manner. Do you believe that's a real place? Yes. Okay. And this, and as you can probably under, already see that this does require it well, not, doesn't, it doesn't have to require it, but it definitely helps to understand biblical cosmology because what the world has taught us for the last 150 years is that you live on a ball floating through space and that you don't know where heaven is. That's what the world is. It's another dimension. Teaching. Which you can't see, which has no description, which you don't know how to get to it, right? But the Bible doesn't describe that. The Bible describes that the place that we were made, there's a similar place above us with water and trees and mountain and land and food. The, that, that's where the angels live. That's where the father lives. That's where his tabernacle is. So in the same way that mankind was given an enclosed atmosphere to rule and subdue in Genesis 1, 28, over the earth here, the angels were given their place in heaven to live, and the Father actually lives at the top layer of that place above us in, in heaven. And but in his house, according to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Revelation, I mean, there's there's water, there's rivers, there's trees. That means there's agriculture. That means there's an ecology, right? That means that you have, I mean, he says it's a land of milk and honey. That means there's cattle. Jeremiah 31 tells us there's a, it grows fruit and corn that there's cattle and rams that, that abound with joy on the hills of God. So like, it's a real ecosystem. It's a real place. So if it's a real place and it has a real temple and there's our high priest who ascended there on purpose to go up there to do a job, which that's what was prophesied of him has become the, the high priest um, of the Melchizedek order for, so that he could minister over <laughs> mankind. Well, then why would we suddenly think that he's not doing what a priest is described to do in this, in the replica that God told man to make on the earth. If we, if we see the sacrifices as, um, as an offering and as a meal, you know, uh, it makes sense. Yeah. What's uh, more difficult to make sense for us, <laughs> for, 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 for the newbies here <clears throat> is the sacrifice, the, the need of blood to atone for your sins. The need, the fact that blood needs to be involved for your sins. That's more difficult to understand, especially after the resurrection. So I have two questions. Were the blood offerings for sins in Eden before before um, sin began? 
or were they just sacrifices to partake meals with uh, God in the Garden of Eden? The only text in, in uh, ancient Israelite literature, even though it's not included in a lot of modern canons, but it, it is included in the, in the Tawahid Eastern Orthodox canon, is called the Book of Jubilees. Mm -hmm. And they do talk about um, incense being burned on an altar in Eden before Adam was kicked out, as well as the angels teaching Adam and Eve how to do land husbandry and set aside residue. And that's the only descriptions I've ever seen as far as what type of activities that, that Adam and Eve did in the garden relating to priestly concepts, because the idea of setting aside residue uh, resonates with the instructions for first fruits or your tithe that you would bring three but times. No, a animals. Year no animal sacrificing is mentioned. It doesn't, anywhere. it doesn't specifically say, it doesn't specifically say, I mean, we know that, that an animal was killed to clothe Adam and Eve. So it doesn't specifically say if, if, uh, I mean, to me it, in Genesis one in the Greek, it does say very clearly that, um, Adam was told he could eat the animals. And this is, this is a debated point because people try to look at the Meseret, the Hebrew Meseretic versus the Septuagint, but what, what, what I have the Septuagint and I have it in Greek as I am awesome. Greek. Uh, yeah. Where does it say that, um, Adam was so allowed it, to eat meat? In, in chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, where it's telling Adam, here's the trees and the shrubs and the green plants and the herbs you can eat and the winged creatures and the cattle of the field. And the, and the... Sorry, what's going on? Okay. So um, that's in, in, in that passage there. In modern English translations that are based off what's called the Masoretic text, they add in a little article, the word T-O, too. And so it... It reads and it confuses people because the way it reads is, oh, and to Adam, it's like God telling Adam, I'm giving you the green trees, I'm giving you the the, uh, uh, the, the bushes, the, the plants, the herbs, and to the animals and the birds of the sea and the fish and the, and the thing. And so it looks like it looks like God is stopping talking to Adam and then turns and talks to animals. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Because I don't have um, an English Bible. I just okay. have the, the Greek. Would you like me to read it from, from my Bible? Again, the just, to, verse. just to give people an idea of what I'm talking about as we compare yeah. it. Yeah, put it up on, on yeah. the screen. Sure. In English. And that will be the Septuagint in English or that would be the King James? No, this is this is the Masoretic. Yeah, it's, it's uh, Masoretic. one of the translations based off the Masoretic. So but um, but we can look at the Septuagint as well, and also the actual Greek, the actual original Greek text. So right here it says, verse 29, Then God said, Behold, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed, they will be yours for food. And verse 30 says, And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and every creature that crawls upon the earth, everything that has the breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. So people say, people think, oh, look, in verse 29, he's talking to Adam. In verse 30, he's talking to the animals. But this, do you see this word right here too? Do you see this word too? Yes. This is not, this is in the Masoretic, the Hebrew. This is not in the Septuagint. If you look in the actual Greek that they base the Septuagint, like if you go to, this is, this is not, this is not in the actual Greek text. It's not, it, there's no change. There's no, it's, it's just saying, and every beast of the earth and every bee. Does that make sense? It does. So if, so then let me read it from this perspective. 
Then God said, Behold, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. They will be yours for food, and every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and every creature that crawls upon the earth. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. So it becomes a translational discrepancy. And this is where I would suggest people go back to the original text. And the reason I say this, Maria, is because we see just three chapters later, Genesis 4, they're bringing the flock for a first fruits offering in Genesis chapter 4. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah. Yeah. But that's, but that's after, um, mm-hmm. you know, Adam and so Eve. A, uh, so, a first, yeah, this is why I was talking about this this thing about jubilees and asking, is heaven real? Because mm. the first fruits offering requires the priest to eat of that meal. So this means jubilees 6 tells us that the the feast of first fruits, which is commonly called Shavuot in the Hebrew, uh, it's also called the uh, just the feast of first fruits. It's, it's in the middle of the third month on the Hebrew calendar. The book of Jubilees in chapter 6 says the angels in heaven have kept that feast in heaven since creation began. So what are they bringing forward to the Father to, to complete the requirements of that feast in heaven? They're bringing forward that, their first fruits. Yes. So remember when I said earlier that Jeremiah tells us that heaven is a place with real land and trees and agriculture. There's there's wine, there's crops. I, un- there's- I understand that. So what's the significance of um the significance is that there's no double standard. God didn't change the way things are created or the way things interact in creation from the beginning of creation. No, 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 no. I, I, I understand that. My, my question is, according to your understanding, of course, why is that God's system? I don't, I don't so, know why he, you ask him why, why. Uh, how, how do you understand it? I'm not, I'm not saying that we, you know, he has to explain himself somehow or we need to, absolutely understand his ways maybe not i'm just asking for your understanding uh, how, well my understanding is that understanding? I, of what which part like why we eat animals is that what you're no. asking no 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 about okay. the sacrifices about about the need to sacrifice well the, the reason, I, the reason i'm going through all, with him the reason i'm going through all this is because you're using a word that's been demonized it's think not about what the scripture well, I'm not, I'm not, nine, my question is not because I find, okay, uh, maybe. So this is why sure. you're questioning me the way you are, is because when I tell you in Leviticus chapter 6, it calls the sacrifices holy gifts, it puts a completely different understanding on that. It's no longer this vain so thing it's gifts. where animal it's, has it's, to it's, lose his it's life. A, it's a way to say thanks. Th- thank mm-hmm. you. It's gifts. In the and same also way that, to partake a meal. Yeah, in the same way that you make a meal with your family so that you create a bond. It's well well known and well studied that sharing a meal with uh, someone creates a bond. Yeah. In the yeah. same way that in businesses you have a meal to to create a business agreement. I'm sorry, my my wife left, and so now my dogs are barking every time something leaves. I, I can't hear. I can't hear it. So. Okay. Good. Fine. Good. So yeah, in the same way that uh, people and and business agreements they come together over a meal to to bond and to make to come together in fellowship and peace. Um, that's the way the father created all of life. That's the way he does things. 
But the difference is he created a, a, a specific system that he wants done, right? He has a, his house, a specific cooking surface, a specific person, which is the priest is like analogous to a chef. So a specific person who knows what the father likes and how he likes his food cooked and a specific ingredients, you know, the salt, the oils, uh, the spices, uh, you know, all the things that he likes and the right cut of meat there. Cause in the Bible, it goes into great depth and breaks down. Like the father likes a certain cut and the other cuts he gives to the priests. So like, this is nothing different than my father. When he, he was cooking on the grill when I was a kid, he got the big T-bone and I got the smaller little steak. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He liked his cooked a little bit differently. He liked his more meat and rare. I liked mine more well done when I was a kid. I'm different now, but you know what I mean? And he, you know, he put more garlic on his and more butter than he put on mine. And so like, there's the, the point I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I'm obviously I'm using a, a, a very easy example, but that's all it is. It, but it's men. It's the church, like I said, that was built off bad understandings because of all the friction for about three or 400 years after the ascension of Christ and all the persecution of, of the Christians who had limited text to work with. This was before archaeology was widely accepted, before we found all kinds of ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament, before there was intercooperation between Judaism and the church, before all that stuff. It was a strong divide amongst believers, and they had limited information, and they were being killed all the time everywhere. <laughs> so it was like you had scraps of Paul's letters or scraps of gospel accounts that you were reading from. And most of it was passed around orally. And then in a certain little pockets where there were protected areas, um, you had had more of a better understanding and you had bishops starting to, to emerge as leaders of Christians and get it more of a formalized type of church, right? But there was still a lot of chaos during that time period and a lot of bad information that they built traditions on top of. And that's where you start to see in the early church writings from the days of, of John the Apostle going all the way into like the fifth century, you see their writings change and they start getting away from the instructions we see in, in the Old and New Testament. And they start building new traditions, but still adhering to the faith in Christ. And so this has created a lot of confusion and I don't fault them for it. I mean, they were doing their best to not be persecuted, right? It's like they were doing the best they had with the time they had. I don't, I don't blame them. It's just that I'm grateful that we still have the actual Bible and we can read it for ourselves. And I can see that God says to me in Psalm 103 and Psalm 119 and a whole bunch of other places that this whole thing that I gave mankind to practice, the, the law of God, all the wisdom within it, the, how, the, the replica of his house in heaven with the priesthood and everything, that he said all this is his moral ways. Those are his behaviors that he does in heaven above. And he gave them to mankind on the earth to practice. He knows, he knows we weren't going to be perfect at it. That's why he gave us a priesthood for atonement when we mess up. That's why he gave us his son to be our high priest to make atonement for us when we mess up. This is why in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, it says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us in heaven's temple, that he lives forever so that he can always intercede for us. So right now, before we get to the resurrection, when we're perfected, right now we still sin, right? First John 1, 8, he who says without sin is a liar. Right now, we still make mistakes. So when that happens, we have a whole system in place that's been there since creation. This is what Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2 says. There's a true tabernacle in heaven, not the replica that was made on the earth. A true tabernacle that's always made by God, not by men. That's where Jesus went to go minister. And that's where he can make atonement, propitiation for us. And then at the right time on the day of the Lord, 
He has the authority to raise us from the dead, and then we'll never sin again at that point. That doesn't mean that these fellowship meals go away, because in the law of God, there was a ton more fellowship meals than just for sin. You had Thanksgiving offerings, peace offerings, fellowship offerings. Okay. First fruits. So, this, so the sacrificing for the atonement after the second coming of um, Jesus will, will no more take place because, as you said, we, you know, we won't be sinning anymore. Well, that's where we talked earlier then, before we started. We talked about it all being connected. So at the, at the second coming of Christ, there's what's called the first resurrection of the saints. And this is Revelation 20, verse 4 and 6. Blessed and holy are those who uh, partake in the first resurrection. They will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Well, in order to rule and reign, you have to rule and reign over others. Right? That means someone's under your authority. Right? So this is why it talks about why I said at the very beginning, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, the coming kingdom of God. Jesus comes back, gets rid of all the bad people, all the bad actors, the bad rulers and kings, uh, Satan and the unclean spirits, establishes the house of God on the ground, and then all the nations are going to come to him and learn. This is Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4. They're going to learn his ways, his Torah, his law, so they can live in peace with each other. And it says in verse 4 that he will judge disputes among the nations. So this is an active reality that we cannot imagine right now where all the nations in the world will travel to this area where the, the house of God sets down and live outside and around it and go to the house of God for judgment, wherein you have Jesus Christ and all those who partook in the first resurrection event that were then made like Jesus Christ, that were glorified and they're perfected. This is what Paul tries to explain in many different passages. That's, and, that's millions and millions of uh, people. That's right. This is like there'll be millions and millions of people outside the city who are still not resurrected mortals. People, this so is what this. So the destruction that uh, is supposed to happen to, to earth uh, upon the second coming will not kill uh, the people. Not everyone. There says in Isaiah chapter 66, 17 through 21, that they'll send out horses and boats and mules and camels, and they'll bring people from all the islands of the earth uh, to the Lord. So there'll be a great end gathering of all the nations. This is what Matthew 25, verse 31 starts to say when Jesus comes and his, his throne is on the earth, all nations will be gathered to him. And there's a reason, there's a practical reason for that is because of the destruction that you talked about from the 42 months leading up to his second coming, when Satan is attacking the earth and there people are being persecuted and there's war and there's famine and disease. And then all that is going to be stopped when Yeshua comes back and establishes his kingdom. And then all the nations will come to him for clean water, food, free food and medicine. So this is what Isaiah 55 and Revelation 21 talks about. The kingdom of God, the water of life will flow out of it and refresh the water courses of the earth. This is expounded upon in Ezekiel 47. The trees that grow along the river of life inside the kingdom, the leaves on those trees will be used for medicines for the people of the yeah, nations. Right? And then... It's really um, hard to conceptualize it then. That's why it's... It's a, it's a small place, that area. In comparison 15, to the approximately fourteen of people who, well, sadly, uh, the Bible does describe there's a, a lot less people at that time because okay. of all the things that, that happened leading up to that time: the war, the famine, the disease, 
um, the attacks of the enemy on the earth trying to kill mankind. And so this is where um, there's, there's less people. I don't know the exact number of people, but you get people that get resurrected and they're living as righteous rulers and judges underneath the authority of Jesus inside the kingdom. And then all the people that didn't get resurrected are brought to him for judgment. This is what Matthew 25 explains, also in the book of Enoch. But Matthew 25, for those of for people that are just familiar with the modern canon, um, and it talks about how when all the nations are brought before him, he makes a judgment call. And he's like, okay, these people are considered sheep because they have been already practicing good behavior, and I can use them and teach them, continue to teach them good behavior. They're going to be good in my established kingdom and all these other people, they hate me. They want nothing to do with me. They're considered goats and they will be removed from the earth. They'll be handed over to the angels to be killed by the sword. And so then they will go, those dead people will go to Sheol to await the final resurrection at the end of the thousand years where they stand judgment before Yeshua to go to the lake of fire. Also um, righteous people, may wait for the second resurrection. So the people that are judged as sheep, when Jesus comes back and he sets up his kingdom and they come, all the nations come forward for judgment and he judges some of them as sheep, those people will re repopulate the earth and restart the, and they'll start the millennial reign under the, the resurrected. I'm, I'm talking about the resurrected ones. Well, the resurrected, they get eternal bodies. That's the promise of the eternal life, yeah. right? So maybe, they live... Maybe inside the, the city i understood that okay, let, okay. Let, let's talk about um, me now a hypothetical when it's my time it's my time and i go you know and wait i'm not a saint you know i have sinned i don't know how much time i have to you know for my atonement for all my sins but most you know most probably i will not i will not be a saint when i die so i wait do I am I going to get right. resurrected at the first uh, resurrection, or I may wait for the second resurrection? I'm not a saint, so I know for sure. Okay, I'm sorry. I, you, you keep saying I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you keep saying that, and I don't understand how you're using that term. So, what do you mean by you're not a saint? You, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? You, you said you're a Christian, right? You, yes. You're, okay. So, I'm not sure. Yes, but if, I have a long way. I mean, I have a long way. I, I, I'm not keeping the face. I'm not keeping the Sabbath. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, it's it's a few months that I, <laughs> I realized yeah, well, what's we, going on. Well, we don't we don't earn our resurrection. I mean, like you you show you practice you know the behavior of God through discipleship over time. You get better at it over time. It's called sanctification. But you don't. You're not perfect to start. <laughs> Neither was the guy that on the cross next to Jesus. He. He wasn't perfect, but Jesus told him, like, literally yeah. dying next to him, that you're going to be in the kingdom with him. So, like, like no, no, this isn't a situation where you you got to, like, have some certain level of lifetime obedience before he's going to resurrect you. Like, he makes that decision. We don't make those decisions. I understand that. He's the judge, right? So, you, you may be a brand new Christian three months in, get in a car wreck and pass away. And, and you'll be resurrected with, with everyone else, like, because he makes that call, right? He looks at your heart. Um, this is why the Bible tells us in Matthew 12, 36, that he judges us off every word and deed. So like he knows your heart, right? He doesn't, yeah, there's no way that you can, you can make resurrection happen for yourself just because you've done a certain list of things, right? I mean, you can be confident that he told you if you've practiced his law, his mm -hmm. ways, that he will resurrect you, right? 
but there's nothing that you can do to truly make it happen. You have to trust that he's going to do that for you, right? That's what we do in faith. We trust for the resurrection in faith. So I just want to encourage you, I guess, by, by saying that, right? Um, so that everyone who takes part in the first resurrection, they're all considered saints because they've been glorified. They've been perfected. They'll never sin again, just like Jesus was at his resurrection. That's why he's called the first fruits of the first resurrection. He's the first one to ever experience the promise of the covenant for mankind, that they get this glorified body that allows them to walk up to the creator of heaven and earth, the father, and give him a hug. Like mankind can't do that right now. We would be destroyed. Our bodies can't be around his power. We're not made for it. Right. So, but the promise is he wants us to do that. He just wants to, to see that we want to do that. So if you live, if we live an entire life of doing his opposite behavior, and we're going out and we're killing people and, you know, breaking our, our promises and coveting and stealing and, you know what I'm saying, and deceiving people and, and get it, being selfish and, and whatever ways are described as wickedness in the scriptures. If we do the opposite behavior of God our whole life, then that shows God we don't want to live with him in his house because that, to live with him in his house is to do his behavior. Mm-hmm. So why would he want to give someone eternal life that doesn't, has never shown him ever that they want to do his behavior? doesn't have a heart that would enjoy his behavior. That would be torturous for that person who, who hates God. He's not yes. going to give that to them. Right. So in the, in the same way, this is why I want to encourage you. Like, you know, there is no, like at the, at the, the idea of the resurrection, there's two resurrections in, that are described in scripture. One the is, second the is second, after the millennium. Correct. That's right. So there's what's called the first resurrection. And then there's the resurrection of the, of the, of the wicked. And the right, and but the the righteous take part in that too. So I'm, we're talking about some some pretty detailed concepts. I'm trying to give you a good quick summary, but like I said, you're asking great questions. It's all connected. So this is why there's a imagine the the millennial reign with my hands. Okay, this is the beginning, and this is the end. So at the beginning, there's a resurrection of the saints of the dead in Christ. These people will rule with Christ for a thousand years. If you get resurrected at that point, you rule with him for that thousand years. At the beginning of that thousand years, if you don't get resurrected, but you are part of those who were still alive, the survivors of the day of the Lord, and you are considered sheep, meaning you're teachable and he's going to accept you into his kingdom, then you get to live as long as you continue to live throughout that millennial reign, right? You're eventually going to die. And then you'll go to Sheol and wait the second resurrection at the end. And at that point, you may be raised to eternal life. Or you may be erased to stand judgment, to be thrown in the lake of fire. So this is where, remember I talked about earlier about those, those bad understandings that they build traditions on and then no one questions it because they're, they're either intimidated or they're told not to question it. You know, um, I'm so sorry. Can you hear that? I can't. You can't hear it. I, I feel like people probably can. I'm sorry. Just give me one minute. Yeah. All right. I apologize. Okay. So <clears throat> this actually has has to do directly with your initial question. Sorry, let me get my camera to refocus here. I'm not sure why it's unfocused. It's so weird. I never have camera problems until now. Now you're orange again. Not, not, not yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. So this actually has everything to do with what we were talking about earlier. When you asked about what's the point of sacrifices, what, what, ha- what, it, you know, what are they? Why are they? Why did God choose to do this? And are they are they done? Are they over with? What's going on? And so 
all these descriptions of the kingdom of God I've been describing to you. The resurrections, the first one at the beginning of the millennial reign, the second one at the end of the millennial reign, are how he determines who gets into his kingdom. Because you you can't be a mortal, you can't be a person that's full of sin and wickedness and frail weaknesses and go live in his house with him and start causing problems. Yeah. Right? So because of that, he wants perfected, glorified individuals that he personally, as Ezekiel 36 says, when he raises us to eternal life and puts his law in our heart, sprinkles his spirit in us so that we do his commandments and ordinances faithfully. That's the promise of the covenant. We get his law in our heart. We do his behavior and we don't, we don't fail to do it. This is how we will forever have peace with the father because we will be doing the perfected behavior of, of the father himself. This is what Jesus exemplified saying that in his mortal life was without sin. It was a huge feat that no one, no other humans ever accomplished. This is even at the first resurrection, he's given a spiritual glorified body. He doesn't have a normal body of flesh that's going to decay and die anymore. He's given a resurrected glorified body who then gets to live in the father's house forever again. Right? So this is the promise to all of mankind. This is what God has wanted since the beginning is to get us back to the garden, which is his house. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So with that in mind, he created a process for how he enjoys fellowship with us. And we see that same process of a qualified cook, i.e. a priest, a specific ingredients, a specific cooking service. He just like, do you, uh, do you mind if I ask, are you married or do you have a boyfriend or I have, yeah. you're, you're married? Okay. So does, do you or your, your, your spouse, do you like to cook? Yep. Uh, do you have a grill? Yep. Yes. Okay. Some some men, I don't know if women are like this, but I know that in the United States, there's the when you go to the store to buy different grills, they have all these different types of grills there. And men like a specific grill. Like when they find a grill that they like, they buy that brand because it does certain things, it cooks it in a certain way. They very they like that grill. Our Heavenly Father is the same way. He said, I want you to build my grill, which is called the altar, with the specific ingredients and specific stones, specific utensils to get the meat off and flip the meat. It's all in Leviticus. It's all laid out for us. It's the specific way he wants his food to be prepared by a specific person that he trusts. Just like in ancient times when the king had a specific chef that he trusted wasn't going to poison him. The same way he chose his priests to cook his meals to be presented to him because he trusts them that they're going to use the right ingredients and cook it the way he likes. And so this is why in the Bible, when you see an actual sacrifice and you see the, the Olam, the ascent offering, that the portion that's given to God, it says that, that Yahweh views it as a pleasing aroma. He likes yeah. it. Right? So Hinduism and ancient Egyptian mythology teaches that the cow is sacred mm -hmm. and you should not eat it. Mm-hmm while they also practiced cannibalism. So do you see the inverse between what the creator of heaven and earth taught mankind? Hey, I value mankind. Don't eat each other. I've given you food to eat. Here's the cattle of the field, the beast of the field. I've created them as a food source for you. Satan comes along through false religions, through, false na through other nations, and says, 
you can eat men, you can cannibalize men, but don't eat these cows. We we venerate these cows as holy. It's an it's a flipped on its head. It's an upside down uh, theology versus what the Bible teaches. And what we know from science is that you, you start eating mankind, you you get problems, right? Um, as well as if you stop eating. Now, I'm not talking about modern cattle that has all kinds of hormones and chemicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. But if you're just a, like a pure, purebred, no hormones, no antibiotics, no vaccines in the cow, there is a ton of good nutrients for you in that cow. And you can live on a meat-only diet if you really wanted to. Now, obviously, you know, the father you know gave that, us all kinds of other food. Yeah, definitely. You know that people strongly believe that in Eden we were not eating um, animals. I know. I know that's what and I was talking that about. We that. will go back there to that. Well, that, uh, that so, um, yeah, I know you said you've been reading the Bible for um, just three months, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, have you read that part in Matthew twenty-two, where it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb? No. Okay, so this is when Christ returns and people are coming into, um, there's a there's considered a wedding, right? This is why in, in the book of Revelation, it calls the house of God, the, the new Jerusalem, the, the kingdom of God that comes down out of heaven, it calls that the bride. So in, in the metaphor, the metaphor is consistent. It calls the land of inheritance the bride, and it calls the Messiah, the king of that land, under the authority of his father, the king of that land is called the bridegroom. Mm. We, in Matthew 22, the resurrected saints, under the authority of Christ, will be resurrected and taken into that house to live forever. We're called the servants or the guests, the friends of the bridegroom. Okay? But we also get to live in that house forever. So the, the bride, the new Jerusalem, the bridegroom, the Messiah, once everyone gets together at, at the second coming and, and all the people, all the, all the inhabitants, the guests of the, of the bridegroom live in that place together, there's a massive feast that personally, I believe that the prophets tell us in the Septuagint in Jeremiah 31, verse 7 and 8, that it's the feast of Passover, that it's, it's the feast of unleavened bread that we share. It's called the wedding supper of the lamb. In Matthew 22, and it says that the fattened ox are slaughtered and the lamb and the meals have been prepared. So even in the kingdom, you're going to have eat meeting, eat meat eating in the kingdom. Because this was the way it was this designed from the beginning. There were certain things that were made for food and certain things that were not. So I know people like to teach in the garden, they were just herbivores. No one ate any meat in the garden. How dare you say that? That's We don't see it directly told to us one way or another. I personally believe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 from the, from the ancient Greek, it's very clear that he's he, Yahweh is showing Adam, I'm giving you trees, herbs, green shrubs, animals, fish, flying things, all the things that we get later detailed out in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 as far as the animals to eat. This is how it's a consistent narrative from the beginning. Why in Genesis 4, right after they got out of the garden, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they knew what flock of the field to bring forward for the first fruits meal, which Adam would have eaten of. And in the same way, several hundred years later, about 1600 years later, when Noah had the flood, 
Noah knew what animals were considered clean and unclean. He brought seven pairs of clean animals on the boat and two pairs of unclean because he needed a food source. So it's a consistent, this is why on our channel, we talk about something called the eternal Torah, right? The word Torah just means instructions. It's God's instructions to mankind uh, on how, how you should live, you know? And so it's eternal. Like there's, he says it in multiple places in the old Testament that my laws do not change. I do not change that. My laws and judgments are forever. My just, my decrees and statutes are forever. So if he tells Adam, if he, if we see him telling people throughout all of time, all the way from Genesis four, all the way into the millennial reign, that here's a food source for you and, and do them under certain uh, directions for feasts and Sabbaths and fellowship offerings and vow offerings, it would be no different with Adam and Eve from the very beginning. Is, is, is Sean, what I you, put forward. Do you have that um, uh, verse uh, in Exodus twenty one twenty nine in um, in from the Septuagint in um, in Greek? W where did you read that? What? Where did I you read said that? that you, yeah, because you said that um, the Greek Septuagint doesn't have mm -hmm. that. Um, no, that it's, tool. Well, it depends on if you're looking at the Brentons. It may have the Brentons or the. Uh, I think it's the Lexing, Lexingham. They go, they actually mix. It's hard to explain. Um, but if you go to, you ever seen the website Blue Letter Bible, which has the original Greek text in the Blue Letter Bible? Blue Letter Bible? No. Okay. Yeah. I didn't okay. know that. Um... There's an, a free online resource. It's called Blue Letter Bible. Mm-hmm. And if you go into Genesis 1, 29 and 30 on that website, and you can look at the original Greek. Bible search and study tools, that, that one, huh? Yeah. Okay, because so. a lot of the modern day uh, Septuagint translations, they still have um, uh, translator insertions in them. Are What's you... the Septuagint? Because here it says King James. I mean, what? where is that? You have to go into the, uh, there's a drop-down box that says LXX. LXX is the Septuagint. Okay. Yes. It, that's the uh, Roman numerals for 70, and that's what yeah. they call the Septuagint, yeah. Exodus. Yeah. Now, that's, okay. Maria, that's if you're just asking for a specific verse where Adam would be told mankind can eat animals. But I'm trying to also put forward the entirety of the whole Bible and on into forever. Mm -hmm. It says that we'll be eating the flocks of the field as a fellowship meal with God. So let's put it, let's just play devil's advocate for a minute. And let's say I'm wrong. Let's say I'm misinterpreting Genesis 1. It's a mute point, even if I'm misinterpreting it, because the rest of the Bible says forever in God's house, we'll be having fellowship meals with him, which include the lambs, the rams, the goats, the cattle, as well as the, the produce of the field and all the green things. I I, I don't know because personally I, I, I am eating meat. I was eating pork and everything. I had no idea. Now I, we decided that we will stop eating pork and shrimps and stuff like that at least. Yeah. Now I I don't know exactly what I'm gonna do about the blood because you know I had um I had an interview like two days ago with um someone who was very adamant that our meat we shouldn't be eating meat but if we are eating meat 
that we need to make extra sure not to have every blood and there is a whole procedure how to make sure that there is no blood left in in that meat and which so it's another topic uh, did they did that person distinguish between myoglobin and actual blood did they know the difference yeah we say it's the same you know it it it, it did, still contains it still contains um cells from from blood you know blood cells but it's 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 not it's not a topic <laughs> you know i okay I is that a medical analysis or is that just a personal opinion uh i, I don't know i don't he, he's not okay. a doctor so so definitely it's not okay. it's not a medical but anyway that's not the point the point is that um these people who who don't eat meat okay they understand that, uh, that there is a distinction between clean and uh, not clean meat so it's not a sin to eat meat but if you if because uh, that 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 person uh, believed that in Eden Adam and Eve were not eating meat so they say since the whole purpose is to go back to Eden even if we are allowed to eat meat we shouldn't because in Eden they they didn't so you know for a spiritual for a spiritual Mm -hmm. growth or whatever we shouldn't eat meat so it it does it it does affect your everyday life if you believe that in eden adam and eve were not eating meat because if you want to be like them if you want to be with with no sin you want to go back there to eden so no meat well that's assuming that eating meat is sin though yes okay so i'm gonna show you a quick verse okay no, because they because he did acknowledge that eating meat is not a sin. Definitely, it's not a okay. sin since we have, but, you know, we have his, instructions how to eat it. But think about what you just said, though. You said that the idea was that his understanding is that in the in the garden, in a perfect environment, there were not eating meats. That was his yes. interpretation of Genesis. Yes. Um. But. I'm putting forward that the father tells us directly in his word that his paradise, which is his garden of God is coming back. And it's actually, there's prophecies in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 54 and other places. And second Ezra chapter seven, it tells us that his, the garden of God is coming back to the earth and it's called the new Jerusalem. And that this is, this is the inheritance of people that believe in Jesus Christ, that believe in God and his son is, is we get to live in that place. This is why the prophecies talk about it being made larger to accommodate for everybody. That's going to be living in there. And I have on screen here. This is just one verse. There's many others. Isaiah 56. I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Mm. And this is all this whole chapter here is in the millennial reign setting. Right. Because it's not talking about just the nation of Israel. This is for all no, nations. No, but it this... but it doesn't specify that it will be uh, animal sacrifices. Could be fruit. You know, that there is no um... other definition for burnt offerings and sacrifices according okay. to God's word. The... Okay, I understand. Right? But then, then we is, go back to that is... conversation of what are the definitions of the words. Yeah. No, this is where I men understand. men yeah men have a um, a predisposed mindset when they struggle to want to accept something, they want to redefine the parameters so that it fits their predisposition. This is what all men do. 
called it's called selfish justification, right? So they they say, I like I heard what you say, and I'm intelligent enough to understand what you're saying. I just don't like it. And so I wish it said something different. And so they start saying, Well, does that word really mean what you say it means? And you're like, well, let's look it up. Let's look at how it's used in all these other circumstances. Let's look and see if there's different definitions for it. Like the word Elohim, right? That's my next question. It's great that you went there. Okay. The definition of Elohim. Because I've heard, of course, uh, the definition that you put on. How how can we distinct, distinguish then which type of Elohim each time the you know the scripts the scriptures um, reference, yeah. for example, because I don't have the Hebrew text, of course, so I don't know when uh, the word Elohim uh, is actually uh, being used. It's all translated as God or Lord um, right. in our translation. So, for example, with Moses, uh, is the, the word Elohim is being used that an Elohi, El, Elohim is being in contact with uh, Moses and uh, is giving him um, the you know the the stones, the Ten Commandments? Is the word Elohim used there? It depends on the chapter, but yes, it's used there. So, how in do Exodus we know twenty four ten? And other places. Okay, so, so how do we know it's an angel or a god or you know the father or the son? If if all three can be referenced as Elohim, or even or even kings, I, I've heard uh, people say that sometimes mm -hmm. even even human kings can be referred that's right. to. That's that, yeah. How do we absolutely. distinguish that? That's my question. I, I, I don't understand. Context. Yeah. So we want to look for qualifiers in the context, and I know that context sounds like a very broad and undefined term. So I'll give you examples of how to find context. And this is something that we teach on our channel. So in the in the the question you're asking, as far as the account of Exodus, when it uses the word God in multiple places, and people think, well, oh, well, it must mean the Father God, like the creator of heaven and earth. Yes. Not Jesus, but some people try to think it makes it mean Jesus, right? But let's just say we go with the traditional claim. Which is, no, we all understood mean, God, the Father. We all understood right. the Father. Well, there's the a Father new himself. there's a new group of people that try to say it means Jesus. So, but okay. yeah, different new a new theory, right? But um, there. But say like you go Exodus twenty four ten says that Moses saw the Elohim of Israel. Okay, so before we go into other passages that help us clarify what what it says there, let's just stay within the book of Exodus itself. And say, okay, if he saw God on the mountain, and by the way, they're celebrating Shavuot with the first fruits feast. If he saw God on the mountain, why does it say, and that's in chapter 24, why does it say in chapter 33, God tells him, you can't see me and live? So he's going to, in Exodus 34, he hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by and only gets to see his backside. He says, nobody, no man can see my face and live because of the. This goes into a little bit deeper study, but it's because of the way we were created versus him, the way he was created. So this is why we would also put forward that Adam and Eve, according to ancient Hebrew literature, Adam and Eve did not see God the Father in the Garden of Eden. They had angels there that interacted with them and babysat them and taught them how to live. And those were the representatives to which they communicated with the Father. This is the purpose of why angels were made. So... In Psalms, you know that they're teaching well, us that uh, the Father Himself came down and walked with Adam and Eve. Oh, I know, I know. 
Right. But this, so the same people that have the book of Genesis and they put that in a canon, the same rabbis who, who decided to do that decided, well, we don't like Jubilees. We're going to leave it out. This is in the first century AD. Yeah. Okay. So, but meanwhile, that was just Pharisees. That was just a, a specific sect of Pharisaical leaders in ancient Israel. But then the Christians kept Jubilees. And they put it in their canon. It's been in the the Giyaz and the Tawahid Eastern Orthodox canon for 2,000 years. Right? So is it scripture or not? Yeah. Right? So you got the, the debate there on what is this book, this, this fascinating book that has a lot of similar stories to Genesis, but it has more details. Well, the more details, more details in it. Yeah, a lot more, right? So those more details is that they, it, it's consistent though with Exodus is what I'm trying to say, is that they're not able to actually as fleshly beings, they can't just get next to the creator of heaven and earth. They wouldn't, they wouldn't live. So they had angels there as mediators to talk with and interact with, to teach them things. This is consistent in all of scripture. God sends his angels to mankind to help them with stuff or to give them a message. This is literally why they, why they were created according to Hebrews chapter one, verse 14. Okay. And because Elohim, as um, I understand is uh, a plural in plural, right. it means God. Whenever it's being used, it, it means that many angels appeared at that point because it's still in plural. It, in word. a general sense, without getting into the, the singular or the plural, in a general sense, the definition means ruler. And then according to the context about use, you can determine how many people are there speaking in the conversation or which level of authority is that ruler. Okay, so this is why... The Almighty is called the one true Elohim, the one true God. And this is why he's called still the Almighty. In, still, in, still in plural, though. It is, yeah. It is, because it's the way some Hebrew words work. Okay. I, so, I don't know Hebrew, so... Okay. Be, because remember, that's why I said, though, it's the word ruler. It's the word ruler. That's what, that's what I... And in most basic fundamental definition, it means ruler. So then you have to determine... Okay, well, if that's the word being used, how, what level of authority is that ruler? You know, just like in, in modern day understanding, we have, you know, a um, supreme chancellor or we have a yeah, president yeah. and then you have vice president. They're all still rulers. We all give them respect as rulers. In the same way, you have a king, a prince, a duke, a, you know what I'm saying? An earl. They're all rulers, but there's different levels. Okay. So, in the same way, you have the most high God, he's the top. Then you have the sun, and then you have the angels. They're all rulers, but they have different levels of authority and different job functions. So, I totally get that. The thing yeah. is, because I've heard other people, other people's understandings of, um, you know, the scriptures and, and um, the the Bible. This this word Elohim, the, the the fact that it's in plural form. I don't know how how to say it correctly. When when uh, we are referring to you know the Most High, when we are referring to the Father, and and the Hebrew text is referring to the Father in plural, it gives a big opening to a completely different energetic interpretation. See, it's in plural. Like it, you know, it the text is referring to the Most High, to the Father, and it's in plural. So it's not one person. It's not on one guy. Stop! Stop! Stop trying anthropomorphize anthropomorphizing you know him and it shouldn't be him it shouldn't be him that you know he doesn't have a gender 
It's plural. Could be him. Could be him or her. So, it, it's Maria, an opening. Do you remember? Do you remember the the beginning of the conversation when you told me that this particular faith, the God of the Bible, is the one that's attacked by yes, everyone yes, the most? Yes, yes, okay, yes, so yes. what you're doing with these questions is you're revealing all the different ways that it's attacked, and so many others. Yeah. Yes. So the the enemy convinces mankind to look at every single detail that the Bible says. This is this is the creator of heaven and earth. And these are his descriptions. This is how he wants to love and interact with you. And the enemy convinces mankind to nitpick and pick apart every single detail, try to reinterpret it, retranslate it, to deny its actual definition, whatever, whatever he can do to get mankind to not believe it at every single small level. And then it adds up to thousands and thousands of Christians in different denominations that all just argue with each other about the details instead of loving each other. And this, this is, you're just proving your initial theory. Why this particular religion is attacked so much. People don't do this with Hinduism. It's not a theory. It's a, a um, observation. I mean, I observed it. It's I a, felt it. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to denigrate it by saying theory, but it's a wonderful observation that is, I would believe, is not a theory. It's easily proven. But um, but yeah, but what you postulated is absolutely evidentiary with everything that we've been talking about. The enemy wants to get people to disagree with every single word in the book. Don't eat meat. God says eating meat is good. Don't don't create a, a, an offering with meat to the father because you're dishonoring the cow and God didn't really want that. God says, this is my ways. I'm eternal. I do not change. This is what I decided is a good fellowship meal. And this is holy and set apart, righteous and good. But yet mankind wants to say, Oh, no, no, no. Surely he didn't mean that because, I mean, the way I understand this one passage, and I'm going to ignore 99% of the other passages, surely uh, I'm just going to go in with this one and ignore everything else because I, I I know better now. Like, regardless of the chronology, regardless of all the descriptions, this is what this is what the enemy deceives men into doing and thinking, is to disagree or disbelieve every single word of God. So no wonder the Messiah, when he comes along, when Satan tries to tempt him in Matthew 4, his first response to Satan is, is it not written that you should believe that every word of the mouth of God? Right? You should not live on bread alone, but you should believe every word of the mouth of God. Right? So this is, in, in the same way, mankind fails that test every day. The one that Jesus passed, mankind fails that test every day. And the enemy comes to us and gets us to doubt these words, try to reinterpret them, try to ignore their meanings. So in the example you asked about the Exodus with Elohim, Exodus 24.10, it says Moses and the elders. So there was more than just Moses there. There was Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, as well as uh, the, the heads of the tribes, right? So it was like 70 people there. And so they're all sitting midway up the mountain having a Shavuot meal. And it says, and they saw the Elohim of Israel. And so you have to look in the translations because there's a lot of disagreement about some of the translations. And so then that causes confusion. Because people are like, well, I think it says it translates they really saw the Father. And other people are like, they can't see the Father. The Father even tells them a few chapters later, you can't see me. So they definitely didn't see the Father. So who's there? What's going on? Now, I'm not saying the Father wasn't there. I'm just saying I don't think they saw his face. I think the Bible tells us in Galatians 3.19, Paul tells us that the angels were on Mount Sinai mediating the law to Moses, teaching the law to Moses. In the same way, we have Stephen right before he's martyred in Acts chapter 7. 
verses 53, he's also telling the same story of Mount Sinai and says that there were angels there mediating the law to Moses. And whoever the writer of Hebrews is, he says the same thing in Hebrews 2.1. We have three different testimonies and three different books in the New Testament from Hebrews, people that the same the same theology and genetic bloodline of Moses give us the def, give us a consistent account of what really happened there that helps us clarify some of the confusing spots in Exodus from their own testimony and and the Book of Jubilees. In fact, the entire Book of Jubilees is based off of Moses going up the mountain for forty days, talking to angels the whole time as they teach him the law of God. Yeah, he's not interacting with the Almighty. He's interacting with these angels, and yeah, they're teaching I've him the read, law. I've read the Jubilees, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's exciting to me because you get so much extra clarification. But as you're noticing, as you delve into some of these topics and within the Christian faith, and why there's so much disagreement and everything, you start to realize people will take one passage and make an entire theology out of it, and ignore all these other passages. So this is why we. We fervently and lovingly try to remind people to read your Bible. I know it sounds silly. I know it sounds, it can sound it a little arrogant. Sound yeah. Some people think it's condescending or arrogant. I'm not trying to be like that. I'm just trying to be that loving friend to remind you, hey, the reason why you're confused, and I'm not saying this to you, Maria. I'm saying this to a lot of the people that that bring up these arguments, right? And they say the reason why you're confused and you have to make up this theology is because you haven't read the whole book or studied it for any great length of time like you're just taking you're taking stuff out of context and running with it and it causes confusion so let's look at the full text let's let's make sure we're being responsible with it and i promise you it's all clear it's all there it's all there the words clearly define everything for us they tell the whole story it's a beautiful story it's easy to understand but not if you don't read it and not if you take stuff out of context yeah. And you've seen me do that with pastors in real time on these debates. It gets really awkward, doesn't it? No. What do you mean awkward? No, it's a debate. I mean, it's, you, well, you no, it's, it's awkward. It's awkward when there's a man who, who is standing in front of you saying, you're wrong. And then he says, um, the Bible says this, and then I'm innocently saying, okay, let's put the Bible on screen and read it together. And let's see if it says what you claim. And then when we read it together and the words clearly say something different or the definition of the word clearly communicates something different with no ambiguity. And then you see the reaction of that pastor or that theologian and whether they're going to be intellectually honest and admit that their understanding was wrong. And sometimes they don't want to do that. And they start fights. And they get upset, <laughs> and it turns into a three-hour debate instead of a gentle discussion. You know, I really, I really believe that um, whatever understanding these, um, and they're not all pastors. You know, we are talking about, yeah. even about you know uh, simple people, not 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 pastors, but, but they have really devoted um, their life to reading um, the the Bible. Their understanding mean, means a lot to them. I mean, they will it hold does. on to, to that understanding. It's in America, in many, well, also in, in other countries, but it, it's how they get their paycheck. So the way that the system works is when you go through an ordination through a seminary or through a Bible college, you then are ordained under that denomination and what they teach and believe, their specific interpretation. And so you have to repeat that interpretation to show proficiency and in understanding. 
And if you deviate or if you change from that interpretation, that denomination, that association can kick you out. And so they don't want to, that means they may lose their position at that church. Sure, sure. Okay. But do you all, do you all only uh, do debates with uh, pastors? No. No, no. I'm just saying in general, as far as like, I agree with you, they're very dedicated to their, to the way they read the scripture because many times their paycheck is associated with it. That's for pastors, for, for people who are yeah. not pastors. I think it's um, because your understanding of the Bible will determine the way you live. That's right. So it's um, sometimes you're invested sometimes. in it. Yeah. Some of these, some of these discussions are very small points. Um, but others, when it comes to like discipleship, as you see in, in many churches, especially in the United States, uh, that the Christian church is under attack from um, the rainbow coalition is what we call it, yeah. right? From a specific political movement that uh, has sexuality as their core political concept. Um, they're, they're infiltrating the churches to get them to redefine words and terms so that the, they want Christians to accept this type of behavior, which the Bible clearly says is not good behavior. It's destructive behavior, both for families and societies. And so this is where it's become a contentious point in the United States church. Um, so that, yeah, it can affect how you live for sure. But sometimes when you've seen me do interviews or debates where they're talking about like the Trinity or they're talking about things like, you know, did, what did, was Jesus, uh, did Jesus exist before he became born through the womb of Mary, stuff like that. Those things, they have no bearing on your practical discipleship. Right, as your everyday walking out, how you're going to practice no. your behavior yeah. to be like Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. But yeah. deciding whether you're going to sleep with the same gender does have a practical bearing on your discipleship, right? Yeah. So. Okay. Um, I would like to ask um, about your understanding um, in um, Genesis one where first you know it was darkness and then light but um, light was created days before the sun okay. how do you understand that what's the you know because now we can't we we can't uh, understand light without the sun the sun is yeah. the light so yeah it's the light of heaven and the heaven above us that was created so Day four is when the sun and moon and stars are created. So there's three days things were happening before the sun, moon, and stars were created. And the first day, Genesis 1, says the heavens and the earth were created. Mm -hmm. But the earth was still flooded with water. Because remember, we're in a container. Yeah. And above us, there's other layers in this container. I try to talk about it like an apartment building. There's seven floors that the Bible describes. And we're on the bottom floor. And then there's a couple basements that we don't want to go to. But okay. so, but, but we're, we've been given the bottom floor and there's six floors above us. And the most high, that's why he's called the most high. He lives on the top. The penthouse. Yes. The penthouse, right. <laughs> so on day one, the whole apartment building, which is called the heaven, was created. So the heaven is not an esoteric, ethereal, undefined thing. Heaven is a structure. The Bible describes heaven, 
which which is the name in Genesis 1, verse 8. Heaven, the Shomayim, is the name given to the structure called the firmament. So that's why it says, in the beginning, created the heavens, plural, and the earth. And then on day two, he created the heaven, the firmament layer that encapsulates just the earth. So he created six layers, six compartments on day one. And the bottom compartment was the land of the earth that was flooded with water. This is why in Second Peter it says the earth was was birthed in and out of water. Yeah. On day two, he creates the firmament over that encapsulates us, which then create makes it seven full compartments instead of six. And in the bottom compartment where we are, it's still flooded with water. And this is why he says that the firmament created on day two separates the waters from the waters. There's still water above it and there's water below it. And then on day three, he recedes the water so the dry land can appear. And then on day four, we create the sun, moon, and stars. But there was a distinction because um, there was a distinction between uh, darkness and light from, from the first day. That's right. So on day one, he creates the six layers above, and that's the day that all the angels are created on day one. According to Jubilees chapter two, as well yeah, as Job yeah. chapter 38. So angels are called beings of light. God is called a being of light. This is the light of heaven. Mm -hmm. This is why in the kingdom of heaven that comes down later, it says there's no need for the sun and moon inside that kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it's illuminated with the light of God. Wow. So this is why in Revelation 22, verse 5, it says at the resurrection, you and I, we also become illuminated with the light of God. We're like a walking light bulb if we want to be. So remember when Moses, in, in the book of Exodus, Moses, after spending 40 days with the angels on the mountain, he comes down and his face is glowing. So the sun's still up above his head, but his face is glowing so bright that the people are afraid of him. And they ask him to put a cloth veil over his face until it finally dissipated over time. And he faded. That, that's because he was spending time with beings of light. And they've actually done scientific studies as far as how your skin can absorb and then let light back off. Yes. yes like yes. in a form of radiation, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's very interesting that um, day one, this is also in Second Thessalonians chapter five, Paul says that um, it's the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. Right. So this is God's kingdom doesn't need the sun and moon. The sun and moon were created to be lights that shine down on the earth. Mm -hmm. They don't need it in heaven above in the layers where they live above. No, I understand that. Yeah. Okay. okay. So when the, um, the kingdom um, of heaven comes down to, to earth, what's happening to the waters above? Uh, in Revelation 21, verse 2, yeah. it says there's no more sea. So that's going to be removed, dissipated. Something's going to happen. It's going to be redirected so that, that it doesn't flood the earth again. Okay. Yeah. Because I've seen your model directly above us. It's, um, it's water. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what's still there. Like even after a lot of people, a lot of Christians like to theorize that when the flood happened, that the water was gone after that because it came down in and then it was gone. But it, even in Psalm 148, which is, thousands of years after the flood, it still talks about the waters being above the heavens, right? So this is why the earth is enclosed in water. The firmament that encloses us is itself enclosed in water. 
This is why the word heaven is the word shomayim, which means in Hebrew, enclosed in water. Yeah. No, I I do believe that there is water, still water up there, because the way we see yeah. the stars uh, also um, yeah. makes me understand that there is it's light coming, um, shining through water. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, Crow 777? Yeah. Where he does the lunar waves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 and I watched uh, his film. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting theory. It's yeah. hard to prove, but it definitely looks like the moon's sitting in water. <laughs> yes. And all the stars, if you, I'm sure you, you've also um, seen the, the videos of the, the yes, planets. Yeah. Right. And the, yeah. the way they they glow and flicker and yeah. it's like, as like if lights it's on like, water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, if we like believe a the, through water, it's to imagine the perspective of the stars. So, from what I from what I understand from some of the other ancient Israelite texts that weren't put in some of the Bibles, saying that the stars are in the fifth layer of the firmament. And so, if that's the case, they still would look like they're in water because we're looking at them through a layer of water. Yes. That's because the layer right above us would be water. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. everything that filter. we see through that. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, a filter. Yeah. And think about it like this. Think about the power of the sun, um, knowing that the type of properties are within the sunlight. It would make sense that there's a layer of water between the sunlight and us so it can buffer that power mm-hmm. and absorb that radiating power. So that by the time that radiation is absorbed, because, you know, you can squash bad radiation with water. So like, um, it's anyway, I'm kind of going into some other topics, but it's a wonderfully created model. The creator thought out everything for sure. It is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so what part of the law was nailed on the cross that I keep hearing again and again and again? And uh, can you please give me just uh, 30 seconds? Please? Sure. Sure. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. The second death, the, the enmity between God and mankind, which leads to, to judgment of the second death. That's what's nailed on the cross. Christ was prophesied as our Messiah and Redeemer to become a high priest of Israel who has the authority to raise us to eternal life instead yes. of the second death. So I know that most traditional church like in the last 1500 years comes from mostly from Roman Catholicism is they teach that there is eternal death by being in the lake of fire forever. Mm -hmm. But Jesus describes the lake of fire as a place that destroys your body and your soul. You do not live forever in the lake of fire. You're destroyed. means you're no longer conscious. You're no longer here. Your soul, which is a collection of your mind, your will, your emotions, your experiences and memories as well as your container, the body, both are destroyed forever. You're gone. You're out of the video game. So that's what the lake of fire does. The only other option is you get to live forever with the father and the son in their house because you got resurrected. Can you pull up uh, the passage that uh, says that? Sure. I'm sure you remember where, which one it is. The verse. Yeah, it's in Matthew 10, verse 28. So right here, this is a poor English translation, but 
It says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Now, no, this word no. hell is a poor English translation. No, no, I understand that. But I, I was asking for the passage that says that the law was nailed on the cross. Oh, well, that's what I'm saying. You're using a, a term that's not actually in the scriptures. That's why, ah. I, that's why I immediately started to help you with the definitions of that idea. Because you're, it talks about in Ephesians 2 that the enmity between God and man, the ordinances that stood against us, that's what's nailed to the cross. So in God's law, when you break or transgress the law, your soul is deserving of death. But he gave us an opportunity to not have to have our soul uh, die. Because no, Jesus yeah. can raise us to eternal life as our high priest and our redeemer. If you reject the one that the creator gave you to redeem you, then you're rejecting the rede the redemption. And the only thing left for you is to have your body and soul killed and destroyed forever. The word law is not uh, in that uh, passage, in that verse. Now, I'll read it for you real quick. Yeah. It'll say that, it, but remember the key point is what it actually says. It says the law, the entity, the laws that stood against us. So, uh, uh -huh. yeah, what you said that if you if you digress, there's no right. There's no life. So yeah. if you so one of the laws of God is to accept the prophets that He sends you. Jesus was the greatest of the prophets that was sent by God. So if you accept the prophet that He sends you, then the, then the promises that come with that prophet apply to you, right? Very simple. The prophet has a message from God. So if God says, I'm sending you prophets, believe them. And the prophets say, turn back to God and you get eternal life. And this is what Jesus preached. So if you, re if you reject Jesus, who offers you eternal life as your high priest, and he teaches you to keep the law of God, then that's how you get eternal life. <laughs> that's exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, verse 16 and 17. He says, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments of God. But... Men come along over the years and try to reinterpret, redefine, change the meanings, and they ignore those passages. It's not, it's not a hard thing, right? But when we look in the Old Testament, we look at the law of God, we realize if we break the law of God, then the soul who sins will die. It's the soul is deserving of death. But that's not the end of the story. There's, God says more, right? He explains better. He, you just keep, again, if we keep reading, he tells us, but if you've sinned, I create a way for you to have peace with me and you can have atonement. And then later I'll give you a resurrection, eternal life. So this is in that atonement process after you've sinned. So when you sin, now you have enmity between God and his law stands against you. But when you go to his priest and do what's required for atonement, that priest mediates atonement for you, which helps you stay in good standing for eternal life. So we see here in Ephesians chapter two, Paul's trying to explain this concept and I'll read it for us to look at real quick. This is what, this is the most famous passage people will misquote in order to, to, to do what you've claimed, right? The, the argument that you've heard. So it says, uh, uh, but he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. That's that enmity I've been talking about. By abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees, he did this to create himself one new man out of the two, 
thus making peace and reconciling both of them to God in one body through the cross by which he extinguished their hostility. So the hostility is used twice. It's called a dividing wall. The reconciliation is when the hostility is gone. The hostility comes when we break the commands and decrees of God, like I just explained. This is just a very short summary of what the Old Testament already describes for us. So you remember earlier I talked about, and oh, by the way, I should say right here, like it says in the previous context, as he's talking to these Gentiles, that they, therefore, remember, therefore, you formerly are Gentiles in the flesh and called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised. That's the, the group of Jewish Pharisees running around in the circumcision yeah. party. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth and strangers to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. What is the covenant of the promise? It's eternal life. Yeah. So it's Leviticus 18, four and five. It's eternal life. It's Ezekiel 18, 20 through 24. It's eternal life. You only get that through Christ who becomes your high priest who, who helps mediate atonement for you, which breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. He abolishes in his flesh, the law of commandments and decrees, because the law of commandments was, if you break these commandments, you get death. But he removes that fear of death by promising your resurrection, because this is what was prophesied of him to do in his priesthood position, was to have the power to resurrect you to eternal life, thereby fulfilling the covenant that God made with mankind. This is why the honor of Jesus being in his priesthood is such a big deal. He's the only one in all of creation that was determined to be able to fulfill the covenant, give people eternal life, take away the hostility that comes from breaking the law. And this is the grace, which is the word favor that we receive from our high priest Christ. And it is the mercy shown by God to give his son to do that for us. Because we technically don't deserve to be forgiven and given eternal life. But, we, but he extends, mercifully extends that to us anyway, because he sees, all right, yeah, I know you're going to mess up. You're not perfect. You'll be perfect later at the resurrection, but I know right now you're not perfect. That's why I'm giving you a priest to make atonement mediation for you. Does that make any sense? Yeah. yeah that so, that, sense. so there's a process that he put in place to fulfill the covenant promise. So yes, I agree with you. The wording in some of Paul's letters are a little bit difficult. This is what confuses a lot of people, and this is what Roman Catholics have abused over the years. And I'm not trying to be hard on Catholics, but I'm just trying to be real, historically accurate. They've abused some of the writings of Paul to turn it into an idea of antimoniousness, of, of lawlessness, of like the idea that you, you don't have to do the law of God anymore. Now they claim they're the priesthood of God, yes. and they ignore the priesthood of Jesus, and they want that authority to tell you what to do and how to act. And they want to be able to change God's laws. So this is a, an abuse of the scriptures that has happened for many hundreds of years, which people are kind of waking up to that and realizing, oh, that's not what the Bible says at all. You know. So in the same way, we see Paul making a statement like that, that seems that the, if you don't know the Old Testament, that that can be a confusing passage. But in other places, in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that that if we're not walking, that we walk in the spirit by subjecting ourselves to the law of God. So if I'm looking for context, right, and I see in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this unique statement about, oh, he, the hostility was broken down, and he abolished in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. Does that mean I don't have to do the, I don't have to 
does that mean I, I'm free to murder people now and I'm free to commit adultery and I'm free to steal and to kill? And like, does that mean all laws, God's laws done away with? No, it's, no. It's obviously, I, I, obviously, we no, would say no. You, you know the argument. It's not the Ten Commandments that they have a problem with. Mm. It's okay, all but, the rest. But watch this. But watch what this. We what eat, about, how we dress, the face, you know. They, what they about spend. kidnapping? That's not in the law. That's not in the Ten Commandments. What about abusing your animals or abusing your wife? That's not in the law of the Ten Commandments, but yeah, that's, that's in the law of God. Because I've heard the arguments, I've heard the debates. That's that's yeah. moral. It's it's the 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 problem is not with the moral roles, uh, but laws. But the look, problem is with what they call. And I know I know what you say that there is no such wording in on you know in uh, the scriptures with a ceremonial. That's that's the problem. That's that's the right. contention. And you're acknowledging that you see through those arguments because you realize they're just inserting words to to make their point. Because the verse that we're reading doesn't say anything about moral or ceremonial. No. Okay. So we, we understand that in these arguments, we have to sometimes weed through the bad arguments and how they're framed by with bias. Okay. So this is why I tell people like, because I've heard that a lot growing up myself that they'll say, oh, it's just the Ten Commandments. But then you're like, okay, well, okay. <laughs> um, outside of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 24, it says I can't kidnap people. So is that okay now? What about Leviticus 18 where it says don't sleep with your sister-in-law or your mother-in-law? Mm -hmm. Is that okay now? Like what are we talking about here? Father says he doesn't like unjust weights and measures, meaning uh, – not applying the uh, equal justice in during business transactions. Is that so? What I can be a shady businessman now? Is that what you're saying? Of course not, right? This this is all very common sense. Of course not, because but this is where people try to justify through again, like I said at the beginning, they have a bad understanding to begin with. And they build these traditions over hundreds of years off that bad understanding, and no, and and it's the same people that are building those bad traditions are also telling the people, the layman, oh, don't worry about reading the Bible. We'll read it for you. So then you have a lot of believers who in their heart want to love God and want to know Christ, but they have bad discipleship because they're not reading the Bible on their own in order for them to test the claims by the so-called leaders. So this is why we have so many problems in the body of believers. So I would just want to encourage anyone listening that um, it's very simple. It's very simple. Start, like you said at the beginning, um, you I, I've caught your attention in some of my videos you've watched because I try to make it as simple as possible. No, and I, we also get into the nitty gritty and the details as well with many videos. But yeah. when I do a summary, I try to make it as simple as possible. It's it's very simple. The father yes, and his son, they, continuity want, in, um... they want you to live in their house and they have a specific behavior that they'll never change from. They gave us that behavior and it's been scripturally that it's called the law of God, right? The, the, the instructions of God. That's their moral behavior. That's never going to change. So if we want to live in their house with them forever at the resurrection, that's the expected behavior. And that's what they promise us in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37, that they will put their law in our hearts. So it, so for any Christian that's watching that may have heard some bad teachings from, from mainstream churches, that they think that we just believe in Jesus and the law of God was just for the Jews. That idea came from Judaism and was carried over into Roman Catholicism. That's not an idea from the Bible. That's an idea from people who rejected Christ, who did not like Christians, 
and did not want Christians to participate in the feasts of God because they had this segregative mentality in Judaism. They want it for themselves, and they think they are the arbitrators of knowledge and truth. This is something Paul tries to address in Romans chapter 2. And we are supposed to keep every single um, guidance, commandment, um, or law in uh, Le uh, Levit Leviticus, you, you call it. Um, well, there's a lot of good instruction and wisdom throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I would I would encourage people to do what applies to them. So I'm a woman, so am I supposed to change bedroom and even leave the house for, you know, a week, every week, every month? So this is where we would look for context. And the, the reason that the, they were doing that in the Old Testament is because they had to physically go to the temple. And so that's why they had to be to worry about being unclean when a woman was on her menstrual cycle. You um, and I do not have physically to go to a temple. The only other temple that is in prophecy in the scriptures that's coming back is the New Jerusalem. And at that point, we'll be resurrected anyway, and you'll forever be clean. I will not have um, a menstrual cycle, That's right. I, I suppose. We, we, <laughs> okay. we won't be marrying and given in marriage at the resurrection, as Jesus tells us. So we're not going to be having babies. This is not okay. Mormonism. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with that, yes. Okay. Yeah. The other the other thing man, that you mentioned, um, that we don't have um, a temple and a priest, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't understand 100% how the father gave us his feasts, you know, to, to celebrate every year in a, in a specific way. But then, but then he said, you know, but I will take the temple away. So you won't be able to, to celebrate the feast the way you're supposed to celebrate the feast. Right. I, well, I, at the same sure way, I, I can't make atonement. I can't make atonement the same way they did in the past. I have to no, just but now give we my have... confession to Christ. He yeah, does the rest of the work Christ. and I can't, right. I can't watch so... him do the atonement sacrifices that you used to be I able know. to watch the priest do on the ground. So why well, it was, let's say part of his um, punishment, let's say, because, you know, we transgressed. So they say, he said, you won't be able to celebrate the way you're supposed to. Right. Well, let me let me take this. Uh, yes, you're right. And I'm I'm trying to give you some examples here to to think about what you what you're asking is for a is uh, you're saying the requirement was so strict that the that the ideas are not accomplished without the strict dis requirement. And I'm saying the temple on the ground is told to us in Exodus. It's a copy of what's already happening yes. in heaven this whole time. So. That's why Hebrews elaborates in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 that the true tabernacle is where Jesus is ministering in heaven above, and the one on the ground was a copy. So which is more important, the original or the copy? The original. Okay, the original. So as, a, as the idea goes, the original has never been in threat of being removed because it's with him on the seventh yeah. layer of the, the, the penthouse He's not, it's not, it's his house. That's where he eats his food. It's his kitchen. It's never going away. It's always been there. And the angels who have since day one are a priesthood that's created to serve mankind. This is what Hebrew scripture, I mean, Hebrews tells us. This is why in, in the first chapter of Hebrews, it tells us Yeshua, when he has received his priesthood, he's exalted above the angels that were already in a priesthood. So he's now given, because in Israel, a priest has authority. They're a ruler. 
So a part of that authority is there's a hierarchy of priests, as is explained to us in Exodus and Leviticus. So Yeshua is made the high priest, not just any priest, not just a, a regular priest. He's made the high, the, the Gadol, the highest priest. So even above the angels, he's given authority, as Hebrews tells us, because they're their own priesthood. This is why they're supposed to know the law of God. They're supposed to come and help mankind with needs, to teach the law of God, and also to make mediation for us to the Father, which is why it says they receive our, our confession of sins and they relate them to the Father in the book of Enoch. In the book of Revelation, it says that they bring the bowls of the saint, the prayers of the saints and the bowls of incense before the Father. Like they're doing priestly duties. They're, that's what they were yeah. created as, or a priestly class. And they're also keeping uh, the Sabbath, so the rest. Yes. Yes. Because remember, it's the Father's behavior. So everyone in his house keeps his behavior. A stupid question I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask now. Okay. What about the guards down the below? Oh, yes. The guards? The, the guards who, who are guarding the, the, the fallen angels, for example. Oh, she, uh, the, the angels over Sheol. Well, yeah, um, yeah. Scripture tells us there's angels over all parts of creation. Okay. Are they resting? Well, depends on are they I would say yes, but it depends on are they working for profit because that's the that's the actual okay. uh, context. Okay. okay. I, so I, I the, yeah, the the Sabbath isn't but just then about no angel is anything. working for profit. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is why Paul um in Matthew chapter 12 um you, when he goes to heal or at there, um maybe it's not chapter 12, but in the gospels when the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath because he healed the man and Jesus says, well, my father's working to this very day, he continues to work. And he was in re reference to healing people. Because then in Matthew 12, in another moment where the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, according to their man-made traditions, he tells them, do you not know it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath? So following, I think you and I would both agree, I'm not trying to be um, rhetorical, but you and I would both agree that if we, if God instructs you to do something, that's considered his law, right? Yeah. And, and if you carry that out and obey that, then that's good. Yes. Okay. So therefore, if the good. angels who are, if the angels that are guarding or maintaining different parts of the creation, as the Bible explains to us, they're ordered to be there by God to help make sure the creation continues to flow and function or to make sure the rebellious angels are locked away and not coming back on the earth to hurt, deceive, and destroy mankind. So they're so doing good. Technically, these these angels would not keep, would not rest, would not keep, you know, the Sabbath the way we understand, you know, rest. All and of just, the priests. And just be with him, you know, devote that day to him. All of the priests have duties that overlap with the Sabbath. But they have a rotation that's outlined in scripture. So the priests... I have a have a tenure or a seniority like that, and then they have certain duties for for different people, and they would rotate out so that you weren't doing your duties all the time. Does that make any sense? So, like the same angels that guard the the winds. Uh, so, the, for example, in the firmament, that there is described that the winds are are guarded and managed and controlled by the angels. They probably have a rotation. I mean, that would be consistent with the, how the priests work in the temple. That help with the furniture, that help with the cleanup and the teardown, or that help with uh, receiving the the animals for the first fruits and delegating and looking over the storehouse and dealing with the people, finding out who's in need or which ones are orphans and which ones are widows, who needs what. All that requires delegation and administration. 
These are the jobs of the priests, just as in the angels of heaven, some of them are set over different parts of the creation, right? Some of them, there's a, um, in Revelation 19, there's one that um, is also referenced in the book of Enoch, and he's the one that is over the, the, the circuit of the sun. And he has angels under his authority. So they make sure the sun keeps functioning and its circuit and affirmament to shine down upon the earth. All that's for the benefit of man. <laughs> they don't need the sun. Oh. So they've been told by the, the father, this is your job. It's good that you keep doing it because mankind needs the sun. So I want you to make sure that you keep making this, sure this thing flows in the firmament circuit that I created for it and make sure it goes through the right portals, the six different portals throughout the year for the seasons. Make sure you manage the circumference of the sun in the sky. That was a, and so those guys continue to work on the Sabbath because it's not for their profit. They're not doing it for selfish gain. So the, the word in the, in the Exodus 34, when it talks about keeping the Sabbath and abstaining from work, that word in the Hebrew is the word vocation. So it's not talking about doing your dishes or making sure your child has a fresh diaper. I know that we consider that work, but it's not talking about that. It's talking about laboring in order to, for your vocation, things that, that give you profit and help you get an advantage over others in life. If I could put it like that. I understand that. I understand because he says, you know, you, you work for your survival, but one day you need to trust in me that right. I will provide for you. You don't, you don't have to work. I will, right. I sustain you. I understand that. Yeah. And even a more severe example in Leviticus, when he tells them about the land, that they were to not sow the land in the seventh year and give it a seventh year of rest. Mm -hmm. And then they were to trust him that the produce in the yeah. sixth year was going to be in abundance. They would have enough to last through the seventh year. Yeah. 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 Let's see. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now that you mentioned the sun and everything, um, I mentioned an interview I did a couple of days ago um, about this, um, this guy. His name is Jeremy. And he... I approach him because I he he has an um, a way of understanding um, the proper calendar Enoch's calendar what mm -hmm. what Enoch explains as a calendar in a way that I haven't heard before and uh, just to briefly summarize um, his understanding is that um, so the day the sun crosses the equator that's our, our, our spring equinox for the northern hemisphere so the day the, uh, the sun crosses the equator is uh, day day one for month one day one for our calendar but because um you know the sun takes 24 hours to do the, the whole rotation then for uh, the places western of that point where the sun crosses the equator we need to we need to um wait for the sun to come so we need we need morning so let's say that um spring equinox is right now let's say that the sun crosses the equator right now wherever that is on 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 the map you know on on okay. the plane it's evening now for me so i i have to wait for morning so six o'clock in the morning to see the sun after it has crossed the equator and that's that's month one day one um uh, for me in the calendar okay. now and then, you know, it goes 30, 30, 31, 30, 30, 30, um, 30, 30 31 uh, for, um, for months and, and then the seasons. But then the Sabbaths, that, that's, that's what's unique uh, about that uh, approach. The Sabbath would not be on the seventh day, on, on the seventh calendar day. It would be on the fourth, because according to Jeremy, 
creation, the creation week has to coincide with our calendar week. So creation day, creation day one, two, and three were without the sun. The sun was created on the fourth day, the fourth creation day, correct? It was, yeah. It was. So the fourth creation day is day one, calen calendar day one for us. Is that what? The is that yeah. what so, God so said? Sabbath is, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I haven't I haven't done such such an extensive um, study, but in that way, S Sabbath is always the sorry. Four, eight, six, seven. Day four, calendar day four is always Sabbath, and then every every so it's day year one? it's day so one. Day seven is day one. The Sabbath. It's the seventh day. That's right. On, so why would it be creation, the first day? On, it won't be the first day. It will be the fourth day or, or third day. Why would it be the fourth day? What did God say the day of the Sabbath was? In Genesis the 2, seventh, verses 1 but, through 3? But, but seven, the, the seventh creation day. Not, eh? He's the just seventh, saying that... The seventh yeah. day. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, okay. He's just saying that because the sun was was non-existent the first three days so let me, the sun let me was just free. yeah i'm just trying i'm trying to ask strategic questions to, to lovingly put this claim to the test right yeah so if the yeah. father on the fourth day so the father tells us in genesis one and two that there were seven days for technically six days for creation but he talks about the seventh day being made set apart for the sabbath yeah so on the fourth day, in that in those six days of creation, on the fourth day, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Okay? And then on the seventh day, so he doesn't start counting over on day four as day one. He keeps no. counting day five, day six, yes. day seven. Right? Yeah. So the creator does not suddenly stop and start over and say, well, the fourth day begins the count. He just kept counting five. Six, seven, Sabbath. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah. So, I would, I would, I would need more explanation on that theory. That's okay. Um, 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 it's not my place to to explain that theory because it's not my theory. So. Okay. <laughs> so, and um, calendar was not um, one of my questions. I, I just uh, remembered it because we were talking about um, the sun. Okay, I asked about the angels. Yeah, that's a big one. My son is asking me this question, um, Sean. He's seven. He's seven years old. And he keeps asking me, does God know everything? Does he know what I'm thinking right now? Does he know what I'm going to think tomorrow morning? Does he know what's going to happen to me tomorrow morning? <laughs> and I want to say God knows everything. You know, he's all knowing. He knows everything. I'm okay with that. You're okay with that. And then yeah, we... he says he sees our hearts. He sees the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He also says and uh, he sees the end from the beginning. Exactly. But then we have this free will that comes and um, messes up mm -hmm. the, the clear picture that God knows everything. You know, everything is pre-planned. Well, well, no, he knows the end from the beginning as far, but as far as like you being able to have thoughts that are yours, you still have free will. But think about it like this. It's almost like if if you 
continue to behave in a certain way, you become predictable. And you may not Mm -hmm. see it just because he can know what you're thinking or know what you're feeling in your heart. Doesn't mean you're always going to act on that. That's our choice to resist temptation and turn to God. That makes sense. Say that again, please. So just because he knows your thoughts or he knows how you feel in your heart, what you're being tempted with or what your joys are or what your desires are, you may have good desires, right? I mean, we're, we're told in Psalm 37, four, that if we delight ourselves in God, he'll give us the desires of our heart. Well, we would assume that's only good desires, right? I mean, if we're not, not wanting to, to, to be bad, he's not going to give us those desires, right? So he wants to give us the good desires of our heart. Um, so that, but he can see your thoughts and your heart's intent, but you still have the choice to carry that out, whether good or bad. He's not controlling you like a puppet. Just because he can, he can strongly predict what's going to happen based on knowing your heart and your thoughts doesn't mean that you have to actually do that. This is why he tells people to repent. If, if he knew what you were going to do, he'd never tell you to repent. It would be unchangeable. Yeah. But, const- but constantly, he's yelling to mankind, please repent. Please change your behavior. And in fact, he even gives them warnings, right? He says, if you continue to do this, this is what's going to happen. So repent, right? Just like uh, the story of Jonah. And Jonah goes to Assyria and he says, you know, Assyria is going to be destroyed. Repent. And out of, you know, out of nowhere, like a surprise twist in the story, the Assyrian king actually does it. Like this is a, no one expected this, right? And I mean, this is, these are the people that just had invaded Israel in the Northern houses and scattered them and sold them into slavery and took a whole bunch of them back to Assyria. And, you know, this is, this, this was an enemy of Israel, but yet they had a new king whose heart apparently had a propensity to, to be repentant to God. And so I personally think it's because of the captives. I mean, this is, this goes into a bigger study, but um, I personally think it's because of the faithful captives he brought into his country that had an effect on him. We see that in the book of Tobit. Um, but basically it's um, just like Daniel had a positive effect on Darius and Nebuchadnezzar. Right. And they repented and they, they respected the God of Israel and they respected uh, Daniel, even though it took some time for them to change their heart. So the king of Assyria was told by Jonah, the prophet, like your nation is going to be destroyed unless you repent. And then he did repent. And then their judgment was uh, delayed for a hundred years because that king was righteous and he was doing good things. And he, he turned to the law of God and had, and the people in his courts and his advisors repented with him and the judgment was stayed from them, right? And these aren't even Israelites. These are people from Assyria. So just to dispel those theories that the law is only for Israel, right? So, <laughs> yeah, right? So this is, this is a beautiful story of the father saying, look, my expectation is for all of mankind to do my behavior. And I want all people to do that. And when people are not doing that, I can see the thoughts and intents of their heart and where they're going. And I can accurately predict how it's going to end for them, both in their immediate circumstances and the judgment of their soul. So therefore he shouts to all mankind through all the prophets, through all of time, please turn your behavior back to my behavior and live. He tells us this in Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 20 and Deuteronomy 28. He says, if you do my behavior, you will live. Things will go well for you in this life and in the eternal life. 
And he's constantly shouting to people, repent. He would not do that if our, if our destiny was already predetermined. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There would be no point. Yeah, it would be a waste of his, he would be speaking in vain to mankind. He would be punishing nations in vain if they had no choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So why did Jacob had um, three different um, women birthing um, his children? It's a bit confusing. Um, well, <laughs> so uh, according to the story, if we take the story seriously, um, what's called a polyg polygamy, polygamy, but there's another word for it, uh, poly polygamy. There's two different words for it, basically, for having multiple wives. Um, it's not instructed in scripture. Obviously, Adam was given one wife, right? He was given Eve, okay? But there are allowances made for it, depending on circumstances. Um, one of them is in, I think it's in the book of, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy, where it talks about the 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 widow. Um, she's the sister-in-law, but her husband passed on. And if she didn't have any children, she could marry the brother so that he could give her some children. And then she would go under his care and be his second wife. And, um, and then God also instructed the men do not show favoritism. If you have more than one wife, do not show favoritism between the wives. So in the days of Jacob, he uh, was working for Laban, which was his extended family. And he wanted to marry Sarah, but Laban tricked him and gave him Leah instead. And, uh, and, and so then he married Leah because apparently they were twins, according to the book of Jubilee. And he didn't recognize the difference uh, on the wedding night. <laughs> I don't know how that works. It must have been identical twins, maybe. I don't know. But um, but but he married Leah. He, the next morning, realized what happened, how he got tricked, and then he still wanted Sarah, but he had to work an additional six, seven years for Sarah as well. So then Laban gave both of his daughters to him because he was already betrothed to Sarah. So that's where the children start being birthed. They start having different years of infertility between Leah and Sarah. They have handmaids that are under their possession as a family, that are their servants to the family, that they, I don't, people don't like this language, but they own them, right? These are their, their family servants that they've purchased to own and that they took care of them. And even to the point of saying, well, we'll even get in both Leah and Sarah offered their handmaids as wives to Jacob so that they could have children under their authority under their family. Yeah. Where is that on, you know, in the law? And if it is, it's God's law. And if, so he was transgressing God's law. They were under his family. You were, they were given as additional wives. There's no prohibition against multiple wives and there's no prescription for multiple wives. So we can there's do it now. It, unfortunately you could, if, if the circumstances, like if you, you know, really had to, but this is what I'm trying to say, just because we see the patriarchs doing stuff. Like, um, I said, Sarah, I meant to say, Rachel, um, just because we see Sarah offering Abraham, her maid servant, Hagar to have a child doesn't mean it was right. Remember Abraham had already been promised Isaac. So that was him not trusting God in that moment to say, okay, Sarah, I'll take Hagar and we'll have a child Ishmael out of it. And then the angel still showed up and said, Ishmael's not your descendant that we promised you. What are you doing? Ishmael was, you know, and then he had, he ended up because of the disagreement it caused and the strife it caused. 
uh, Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. Now, I love the book of Jubilees because it tells you that Abraham still kept in contact with Ishmael and he taught Ishmael the law of God. And Ishmael came back and celebrated the feast with him and was there on his deathbed and his dying day. And they still, he still had a relationship with Ishmael, right? He didn't just get, he just wasn't a negligent father. So I love the, I love that fact. But it, for Sarah to offer it and for Abraham to, to agree to it, they both weren't in the right. Just because they're people that are following God doesn't mean they didn't make their own mistakes. Yeah. No, I understand that. It's just that um, the way I read it, I, I didn't get the feeling that, you know, um, God was uh, not approving, you know, of this behavior. Yeah. I didn't get that. Um, like I said, it's not prohibited. There's no law that says you cannot have two wives. And there's also no law that says you must have two wives because there's the context. There's the, there's the, open area left for the context of why, why would you have two, two wives? So what happens if, if you wanted to carry on your namesake and the, your first wife, she got injured and couldn't have children. Say there was a war, your, your village got raided by the Amorites or the Canaanites. And I get you know, that, but with Jacob, uh, none of these circumstances were, well, they were, they were case. infertile. Uh, Leah and Sarah and Rachel were infertile during the times that they gave their handmaids to him to make babies. So this, they didn't know if they were ever going to be fertile again. So this is why once um, Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel, she was so overjoyed because she was older in life. And um, she had already thought she wasn't going to be able to have children. So she gave her handmaid for the other children to be born, which were still considered hers because it was her, her handmaid. Um, mm. And so that's where, you know, the whole concept of servants and the law of God and how that relates to children being born under the master of those servants. That's how all that comes into play. We see that um, expressed and explained later in Exodus through numbers. As far as if you have a servant and that servant has children in your household, both the servant, the, the wife and the children are all under the owner of that household, which have been Jacob, the master of the household. And he can let them go if he wants, like they're not trapped there, but it's just like as, as a part of legal property for inheritance, they're all considered his. And so that's why it was such a big deal for the, for Laban to chase Jacob when Jacob left with the two daughters, because he didn't tell Laban he was leaving. And Jacob was breaking the actual law, which was, he was supposed to get permission and be released by Laban, but he, he just left in the middle of the night with the kids and the grandkids. So they're, look, they're patriarchs. They're, they're, they're men that are considered faithful to God over the whole course of their life, but they're not perfect. They had moments where they made mistakes. That's really? only, only, <laughs> only, only Jesus was the one that was claimed to be perfect. Nobody else. Correct. So everyone had to learn. That means they made bad decisions at some point. So How much just time, like more time, just like, do you have a, a uh, continue? We can spend some more time. How much time do you need? At least half an hour. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. And then, and then a second, a second <laughs> <laughs> interview I because I wanted say, to discuss the Trinity, but I, do, I, I don't want to go into the Trinity now. That's it's okay. going to take too too long. Just real quick before we leave the the other topic, just to just understand the big picture that here that again. The father knows that all of us are not perfect and that we're going to make mistakes. And that's why we're called disciples, right? So we're, we're getting better over time. We're being trained. 
Um, and so even stories like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, and they make their mistakes, you know, um, Isaac made his own mistakes where he was favoring Esau instead of Jacob, even though Esau had a horrible heart and was not loving God, no. but he was still, he was still going to give the priesthood to Esau, which, which was a big no, no. Like, and then that's where Abraham had to speak to Rebecca and explain to him, no, no, you make sure Isaac gets the priesthood because Esau is not a man of God. <laughs> so like, you know, this, this, again, remember the priesthood was a position of authority within these tribes and clans and families. So, um, there's, there's all these guys make mistakes. They truly did. But the father is really cool about taking our mistakes and making something good out of them. So all this, these, these desperate decisions that Jacob was making with these two handmaids so that they could have kids, God ends up turning into the actual tribes of Israel, whose names and each tribe name is on the actual new Jerusalem. Now that's going to come down out of heaven. Like he's, he's going to take rough circumstances and he turns it into something good. That's just the way he does things. Cause he knows that we're going to have rough circumstances. Like he, he knows that we're going to mess up. Okay. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to change the subject completely now. Okay. And um, I want to ask you, what's the connection between the teachings of the following angels and modern science and our understanding of the laws of physics? Does that question make sense? Yeah. We don't have, um, there's just one fallen angel according to, you know, scripture after the flood. So before the flood, there were up to 200 before, fallen angels. Before the flood, because all the teachings we that we have were before the flood. Yes. Right? Yes. So de it depends on, uh, the reason when you say modern science, it depends on what field. If you're talking about astronomy, astronomy and cosmetology. All of them. All of them. Well, Medicine, astronomy, physics, chemistry, yeah. all of them. Okay. So yeah, there's definitely, uh, the fallen angels definitely taught pharmakia to mankind and, and first Enoch six and seven, which would be the equivalent of Genesis chapter six or Jubilees chapter five, um, which is a genetic manipulation of mankind. We see that being practiced today all over the world. And we see it also some of these techniques and some of the side effects or the bad outcomes that are, that we do find even in mainstream medicines. We're not talking about experimental stuff, but even in mainstream stuff, even stuff that was you know, the ouchy Fauci juice that was pushed on the world uh, a couple of years ago, they're now finding horrific side effects and possible injuries and all kinds of things because of the way it's affecting man's blood and man's interior uh, construction cells. So this is a, this is something that was a common practice introduced by the fallen angels before the flood that we see after the flood as well. It's called pharmakia. It's recommended in Deuteronomy chapter 18, not to practice this. It's a, it's associated with witchcraft. It's associated with, um, sinful behavior, basically stuff that's bad for you, right? Destroys you. And there was different ways that the fallen angels would use this type of medical manipulation. And one was to create Nephilim, unclean spirits, which is this whole separate class. And another one was to create chimeras or, or uh, giants of men who were not Nephilim. So that gets into a little bit more of a categorization because there were giants who were Nephilim, but then there were also giants who were not Nephilim. So the point is, there were um, there were the giants, manipulation... but not Nephilim. Right, they were just men. They were not unclean spirits. So the Bible makes a distinction between mortal mankind and and a spiritual being. So before the flood, the fallen angels created unclean spiritual beings. Remember, angels are spiritual beings. They use the womb of women in a genetic manipulative way 
to create and birth unclean spiritual beings, beings that could never, ever go to heaven above. Okay. Because they're unclean at all times, <laughs> whatever that looks like. I'm not sure. I just know that they were given bodies of giants. The body is, is not the, is not the point. It's their interior makeup. It's the construction of their biology is the, is the point. Because you can take a body of a regular man born of a woman in all the natural ways, and you can genetically manipulate that that body to make them a giant also. Ah, okay. I understand them. Okay. So there can have a giant that's an unclean spirit, or you can have a giant that's a regular man. You could have a regular-sized person that's not a giant and him be an unclean spirit too, like an angel, right? Like an angel is a spiritual being, but he can look like a normal man, right? So we're talking about the what the Bible describes as the two different types of natures, right? You have a spiritual nature or the fleshly body of a man. Um, and this is where uh, before the flood, they practiced that type of medical manipulation with pharmacia. They also practiced um, warfare, which is used in modern science for the advancement of in modern technology and science advances warfare in different ways. Yeah. Um, so that was taught by Azazel, specifically one of the angels, and as well as the sciences of cosmology, that is attributed to uh, understanding versions of astrology, understanding the movements of the sun, moon, and stars. That was taught by, um, I think it was either Sariel or Kokobiel. Um, I have to go back and read chapter six of Enoch again. But then also the understanding of weather and the manipulation of weather, uh, which is they talked about understanding the winds and the clouds. They were teaching mankind all these types of things in order to corrupt things, which is why at the, at the end of that chapter, it says, and lawlessness was upon the earth and men cried out before the Lord because uh, men were being killed and oppressed and dying as a result of the angels um, deceiving them with advanced knowledge, right? And it says men were striving to learn the secrets of heaven. And these rebellious angels were giving away secrets of heaven, but in a very destructive way. They were manipulating mankind with this information and giving mankind the impression that they were getting something special, right? So this was a, this was deception. This was an, this was a moment of absolute abuse of the power and authority. The angels that were sent according to Jubilees 10 and Jubilees five, the angels that were sent that rebelled in the days of Jared, which is in Genesis six and, and then first Enoch six and seven, those angels were supposed to come down and help mankind. That's why they were sent to help mankind govern himself because they become mankind had become very numerous. And they needed instruction and wisdom on how to govern themselves with peace. But instead, these particular angels decided, you know what? There's some pretty attractive women down here. We don't have women in heaven. Why don't we just stay here and do, and do something different than what God told us to do? And this is where they started abusing women, abusing man, teaching them destructive things that started killing themselves, creating their own children through these unclean spirits. Um, with, which is an abuse of the body of women to do that. And so it was, they were, they then got judged as they deserved for sure. Do you think we would have um, advanced our science without the teachings of uh, the fallen angels on our own? Eventually? I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? It's, it's a great question, but you could only guess because there's no example in the Bible to, to say. All I know is that there is a passage. I can't remember the the verse right now. I want to say it's in um. I want to say it's in Deuteronomy, but um, like Deuteronomy five or six. But it, it's talking about how God says, "I'm the one who gives you 
uh, creative ideas to that you may you know be successful and procure wealth. So with creative ideas comes advancement in, te- in technology and you know advancements of all kinds. In fact, in the Book of Jubilees, I believe it even says that in chapter eleven or twelve that Abraham uh, created some sort of innovation for farming that allowed them to actually farm really well. I'll have to go look that up. I can't remember the exact passage, but um, but yeah, that's creativity. We know that mankind has creativity, right? To learn and to do, you know, and all modern advancements. I do, I'm not the kind of person that says that all modern advancements are somehow influenced by Satan or unclean spirits. Um, because if we're intelligent men who are trying to be connected to God, we can figure out how the creation works and make advancements based off that. Did you know that I actually have a, a an invention that I showed to um, a, the head of a physics department and engineering department at a college one time? No. So this is many years ago in 2012. Um, there's these two gentlemen that I went to this, this college, this is a prestigious college in the area that I lived and they had, and I asked to make an appointment with the, the head of the physics department and the head of the, the engineering department. And I made them sign a non-disclosure agreement. And then I gave them a 30 minute presentation on my invention for a water pump based off of Genesis chapter two. What? <laughs> it's a water the... pump, a water pump. Yeah, yeah, but uh, what do you mean based on Genesis? Well, that's that's where I need to have you sign an NDA before I can explain it to you. But, <laughs> but basically, it's a way to figure out how to create a sense of um, a a. It's not perpetual motion, but it's 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 very much extended motion, which would create energy based off of pressure and water and a series of pipes. And uh, and I got the idea from studying Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter two. And so I showed them this idea and I said, do you see any problems with this? And they looked it over for about an hour and they said, no, we don't, I, 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 it looks like it would work. Like, I don't see any issues with this. And they said, where'd you, how'd you come up with this? Who, who? I was like, oh, I was just reading the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter two. <laughs> and they were just like, what? <laughs> they were kind of <laughs> surprised. And um, so, yeah, I just, you know, men, God can give inspiration for advancements that help mankind as well. It's all about how you use it though. It's like the heart, you know what I'm saying? It's like we can, like God is planning to give mankind free medicine when his kingdom comes, you know, and that means someone's going to have to learn how to make it, right? Well, the angels already know how to make it. He knows how to make it. We're going to be taught how to make it at the resurrection, and mankind is going to be shown how to use it and make it, not to manipulate it and make it into pharmakia, which is an abuse of that, but to but to use it the right way. You know, just like in Jubilee's uh, chapter 10, it says Noah was given a book of all the herbs of the earth so that he could uh, be prevented from all the diseases of the unclean spirits. So like, I don't know where that book is today. I, it's probably at the basement in the Vatican, <laughs> but there's supposedly Noah received a book from angels that had explained all the herbs of the earth and how they're medicines to prevent disease. Like I would love to have that book, right? That'd be the most viable book in all of, all of mankind right now. Definitely. Because I'm, What's your opinion about um, alternative um, medicine? I'm really conflicted about um, that. Well, again, like it's, homeopathy um, and naturopathy and reflexology and osteopathy. I'm not a I'm not a doctor by any means, but at the same time, um, I, I believe that the Father clearly gave us the earth. Uh, we were made from the earth, if we believe the Bible, right? Our body literally comes from the dirt of the earth. 
Um, all the herbs that we create medicines with grow from the dirt of the earth. I think there's a very close knit connection, right? So I think it's very natural common sense, in my opinion, that we shouldn't be manufacturing false medicines that just cure symptoms and not the disease, but we should look to cure the actual disease with natural substances coming from the earth itself. Cause this is, we're literally intimately tied to the earth and the, and the soil. So that's, so depending on what type of medication it is, like, you know, I would have to look at the, the specific quote unquote Western medicine that's being suggested. Um, because I definitely don't think that we should be taking any kind of psychotropics. I really, no. I really think those are very harmful to mankind. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm more talking about. But isn't that what that a lot of modern medicine is? Modern medicine, yes. I don't want to go to to modern medicine. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm talking about alternative um, medicine. Right. Well, you but, asked me what what how I feel about alternative medicine. I'm just I'll, saying, in I'll comparison to traditional. In, in, in comparison Maybe to traditional medicine, which is full of lots of mind-altering drugs, mind-altering substances that are that are manufactured artificially, I would suggest using the herbs of the earth as much as possible. But yes. I can't tell you which ones because I'm not a, an herbalist. No, no, no. Okay. No, no. No. My question is because homeopathy, for example, is using natural substances. But... Recently, I found out that um, I don't remember his name because I'm really bad with names. I have a really bad memory. Whoever conceptualized homeopathy uh, uh, was um, he. He had a revelation, let's say, about uh, homeopathy and how that works by a spirit. He was in contact with spirits, and whoever invented reflexology did the same thing. He. He, he was instructed by spirit about reflexology. So all this, slowly, slowly, uh, recently, I found out that, that, that all these alternative medical systems that I thought they were natural and okay to do, apparently, maybe they're not. Because, you know, their origin was not, was not from God, was not from the Father, but it was, it was from something else. And that's they the case, all believed then... in... Yeah, and they all and and uh, homeopathy definitely homeopathy. I remember that because I read the book. I read his book. I think it's Hanningman, something like that. It's his name. I don't remember. So homeopathy, reflexiology, osteopathy. They all believed in this oneness, in this energy that flows, that we are connected with this energy that flows within the universe and through us. And so their medical system. Their uh, medical systems are based on that, on releasing that energy flow in us to be connected with the universe again, which has nothing to do with, you know, the father and the son and nothing. It's completely different. That's why I asked whether you were aware of all these things and where would you turn to in need for medicine. Uh, those those particular fields of study you're mentioning, if that's their origin, I would not be practicing that. Okay. But right. as far as the natural herbs of the earth and natural medicines that can be created from that, that's what I would suggest if I was in that field of study. I'm not, okay. though. I'm not. Right. So I have limited right. information on that. Okay. I got my answer. Thank you. Um, uh, because, by the way, what you're describing is ancient Hinduism. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, it's it's part of yeah. the Om 
part yeah, of the, yeah, the yeah. initial yeah. vibration of creation that they think they can tap into. Not just the Hinduism, the whole Eastern, because mm-hmm. China has their own, and Japan and China, and, you know, yeah. it's, they name it differently. Well, it's the Qi you know, energy. Yeah, but Buddhism, which is where all that comes, Buddhism comes from ancient Hinduism. It comes from Vishnu. Buddha is just another uh, avatar of Vishnu. So it's an extension of ancient Hinduism. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. To, to, so yeah, I agree with you. It's that that whole concept of tapping into the divine with meditation and tapping into the idea of the essence of creation um, practiced in those Eastern mystic religions. Um, it's it's it comes from four and a half thousand years ago from ancient India. Yeah. So, but the interesting thing is the Egyptians practiced it as well. What meditation? No, just the thinking that their gods had access to the source of creation to which they could, they could have access to through rituals. So they believe in oneness too. Oh yeah. They had their own trinity, just like the Hindus, just yeah, like the Greeks. I was aware. I was aware yeah. of the trinity. Yeah. Yep. And their their god, like in Brahma, to the ancient Indians, was was mm-hmm. Ra to the Egyptians. Okay, I was not. I do a whole. I do a whole series on my channel. Uh, it's called the, the Babylon. Yes, and then I'm going yeah, deeper too long, into that. <laughs> okay. I haven't watched all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go into all this information because it is a lot of information, but I do try to tackle it. And then in my follow-up series, the 42 series, I'm going even deeper into this type of information to give more, more okay, parallels. Me I, I'll watch it. All of it. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's all related <laughs> is what I'm, you remember the story in, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where all mankind used to speak the same language. And then after yeah, yeah. the Tower of Babel, they go to the different lands speaking different languages but they still worship the same gods, the same false gods, the same fallen angel, Zazel, also called Satan, and all of his unclean spirits that represented themselves as the pantheon of gods. They still worship that. They just had new names for them because they spoke different languages now. So this is where uh, I show throughout all the historical and scholastic you know, you know, accounts and research that they all did the same practices and had the same gods. They just called them by different names. And you and I try to link that up and show in history and how it relates to how the Bible was. This is what you were saying at the beginning of the interviews. This is why the whole world is against what the Bible teaches, but yet they all don't fight each other. Yeah. So Hindus Hindus don't come over to the Greeks and say, stop believing in Zeus. The Greeks don't go over to the Hindus and say, stop believing in Brahma. No. No, they don't care. But the moment that you tell either one of them to stop believing in your gods and believing the Almighty and His Son, suddenly they get upset. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Okay. Um, okay. In the Greek Orthodox Church, we take the Holy Communion with um, wine and bread. Okay. What's that? Are we supposed to do that? It's a, it's a tradition, right? Because the communion is a is a the idea of the transubstantiation or transmutation, where they believe it's, the actual wine and bread takes on the properties of Christ's body and blood. It's a tradition made by men. It's not instructing the scriptures, and the mm-hmm. and it's based off the Last Supper that is technically a Passover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we're not supposed to do that. It's a tradition of men 
I would suggest doing what the Bible says and just uh, celebrating the Passover, which which the Eastern Orthodox Church used to call the Pesach. You, you know that in the Eastern we Orthodox still call Church, it like that. what's that? We still call it like that. You still call it that, but but the tradition has changed on how you observe it. So, for example, the beginning of the Pesach is you would have the unleavened bread and the wine, as long as the bitter herbs and the lamb, and that was a seven day feast. Well, it's a, it's one meal that begins a seven day feast. But um, over time, it, it, from my understanding, the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, extended it to to go all the way into fifty days of a feast, for the and they call the Pesach time period a fifty day a fifty day observance. And then over time, in the second or third century, it changed even more, to where now they they start doing this communion idea, which is to symbolically and mystically drink the blood and body of Christ with the communion, and you can do that every month if you want, or every time you go every, to church. Every Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Instead of once a year on the feast days that are instructed in the Bible. And the feast days do not tell you to mystically pretend like you're drinking the blood and body of Christ. There's no trans, there's no trans transmutation of, of the liquids and the food. It's just, it's an observance to do Passover, which does command you to, to, to eat unleavened bread and drink wine in remembrance that Christ is represents our Passover. He's the one that's going to save us from the destruction on the day of the Lord. And that, that wrath will pass over us because we're resurrected and saved from that. Okay. So this is why Yeshua is called the Passover lamb. Okay. Don't go into the feast because that's a whole other subject that I, I would like us to talk about in a, in a second. Um, in okay. the, I would like, well, you, you, I would you asked about the communion. So that's where it communicated yeah. from. Okay. Um, all right. And also I have another question. Okay. Who, who baptizes us? Who marries us? To whom do we go to confess? Is there a priest here on earth that he has this? No. You know, in his heart and, you know, in his, um, everyone yeah. to do that? Yeah. So this is where uh, you would, you would look to, since there's not a, a priest that's ordained by God, in a temple, because that's been done away with. The priesthood was given on the earth. Priesthood was given to the tribe of Levi. So that's why even in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, it says, even if Jesus were on the earth, he would not be a priest because there's someone who already holds that office. That's why he's only a mm -hmm. priest in heaven above, in a different order, the Melchizedek order. So amongst mankind, that's not resurrected, amongst mortal mankind, the Levites were the priesthood on earth, given to, to given to the whole world if you come into Israel in faith and belief. But they were scattered, the temple was destroyed, and they the the prophecy in Isaiah is that that priesthood will not be reestablished until the Messiah comes, and then he'll choose new Levites to minister amongst mankind outside the New Jerusalem. So in the meantime, who baptizes you, who marries you, find someone that you believe is a man of God, that's faithful, that's an elder, in your community or in your, your fellowship of believers? I don't know that would, any. So... Well, that would be the equivalent of the priest. So the qualification for a priest is someone that's a man of God who's faithful, who's righteous. Uh, he does what's right on a consistent basis and has a track record of it. And he, he uh, he's uh, an, considered an elder to you, someone that you would look to for, for discipleship. That would be the equivalent. Or and your if father. I don't know any. <laughs> Will I go to my father to baptize me? <laughs> you could. Yeah, you could. He's he's considered a guise of God. He's considered your elder and your authority. So sure. 
My father married me. Oh, great. Yeah. But your father is a priest. <laughs> he was a pastor. Father. He's not anymore, but, but he's a man that follows those qualifications, I said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Seven Days Adventist Church, is that a cult? <laughs> it, cults, I mean, it, I I personally think they... Um, their, the history of their denomination leans on the writings of someone that's not a prophet with this lady named Ellen G. White. Um, and so in that regard, people can, people get upset with that and they start to claim that they're a cult, but a cult is by definition is going to be a group of people that, you know, they try to manipulate you into being in that group of thinking, and then they don't want to let you leave. So you can leave the Adventist church at any time. They don't like force you to be there. It's not like Scientology. <laughs> So it's, it's very, you know, it's very relaxed. Um, and they definitely, they have their own version of interpretation because they do keep the seventh day Sabbath, but they don't keep the feast of God. They think those were done away with, with Christ. So like they have a weird hybrid, have a mixture of, uh, of reading the Bible and saying, Oh, this says the Sabbath is eternal, but then they somehow skip over Leviticus 23 that says all the feast days are Sabbaths too. And those are eternal. Those are never going away. And those are for for Israel to practice, right? So there's this, in, in modern church language, there's this idea called dispensation theology. And there's different variations of dispensation theology. One of them is that Christians think that the law was for Israel, and now we're we're already in the new covenant with Christ and the church, and everything's different for us, even though they have a hard time defining it. As opposed to what we just read in Ephesians 2 a minute ago, where it says you used to be foreigners to God. You used to be Gentile, which means of the nations, but now you're grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Now you know God because you're, you're in the commonwealth of Israel now because of your faith and belief. So every time, this is another part of dispensation theology that the Seventh-day Adventist Church also holds to in, in some of their mixed teachings, is they think that certain things were for the Jewish people, but now they're Christian believers and other things apply to them, but they do still keep Sabbath. It's kind of a, a weird mixture. Yeah. 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 But I wouldn't call them an actual cult because they don't force you to stay and they don't do any blood rituals and they don't have any weird sex rituals. And so I would, I think they're just another denomination of believers that are very confused. Okay. Yeah. And um, which are the, the books from um, the Dead Sea Scrolls? that you would um, incorporate into your um, reading? Uh, Enoch, Jubilees, Testament of Twelve Patriarchs be the big three. Those are the ones that the first century Pharisees decided to leave out. Yeah, uh, these are you for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm more referring to the lesser known uh, books yeah. that were, you know, they were fine there. Well, uh, besides those, like, I mean, you've got stuff like the some of the Psalms, um, or the writings, uh, like, some of those, I, I wouldn't put those in, uh, not all of them anyway. I think they found Psalm 151. I would put that in. Um, but other books that we have throughout time that weren't found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that used to be in the Bible, I would put those back in the Bible. They were taken out just in the last 1,700 years. Like so ones? like First, um, Second Ezra's, um, the Maccabees, um, Brave Azariah, Bell and the Dragon, um, Baruch, first and second Baruch, um, the epistle to Jeremiah. Uh, there's a whole bunch of books 
that I would put that there used to be uh, Tobit. Tobit was one I mentioned earlier. We Wisdom have Solomon. Tobit. We have Tobit in uh, you know in Bible. Yeah, in the Septuagint. Sure we have it. You should. Yeah, but in a modern, the Greek a lot Orthodox. Of modern, yeah, we have it. American Bibles are very different. We have first, second, and third Maccabees. That's great. Even though, even though I, I heard that the Maccabees, I've heard the other, a different um, view about the Maccabees that they yeah. were Pharisees, but they shouldn't be. Every, the the books of the Scriptures, the history of Israel, and the teachings are in every single point. Everyone's going to attack it at all times. <laughs> you believe in the Maccabees and the three books of uh, Maccabees. There... Yeah, I don't see any theological issues with them, and and there seems to be validation to their historical claims. Okay. Yeah. And what about um, what about Esther, 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 in English? The, the Book of Esther. Yes. Would That's you already in the Bible. That? Oh, it absolutely. is for us. Yeah, there's and in the apocrypha. Well, it's in the American canon. We have what's called the Book of Esther, but then uh, one of the books that was taken out is called the Additions to Esther. And I would put that back in, in our American Bibles, if I had the chance. So basically they chopped up Esther and they chopped up Daniel and they, they made two separate books out of them called the additions to Esther and the bell and the dragon. And so we also have Esdras in our, in our Bible. Esdras is both, both the, books. the Greek transliteration of Ezra from the Hebrew. And that's in like, you have first Ezra, which is in the American Bibles too, but then Second Ezra's is one they took out of the American Bibles that I would put back in. Sure. We have it. <laughs> That's great. Anyway. That's great. Would you, um, is there anywhere online that I could find a list with all these books that should be in the Bible and they're not? Um, not, not that I know of. Because remember, the, the canon, what you're asking about is which book should be in, which that's called a canon, you know, a collection that's codified mm -hmm. by some sort of authority. It's made up by men. I know. I just, I just would like to read all the books that um, yeah. I should read, and not read the books that I not read. Not. Yeah. There's no official list, um, but I can send you an email. I can send you the list that I'm going to be putting in our study, our uh, contextual study guide. I would, yeah, I would be grateful if you did that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'll send that to you today. And um, what about Josephus' writings? Uh, he's just a historian. I wouldn't say any of his stuff is scriptural. He was a Jewish historian that was... Um, I know. Yeah, Do you so trust his writings, I mean? Um, I think he's got, definitely he's got a slant on some of his stuff because he was an actual Pharisee. He was an actual rabbi of Judaism. And of mm -hmm. the Pharisaical party, so I I would not. Uh, he definitely to me has some slants on their traditions. Seems to fuse his way into some of his descriptions of the law, um, but without doing a, I don't have a like a full breakdown prepared for you right now. But in my studies in the past, I saw some things that definitely raised an eyebrow because I had to go check the actual Bible, and I was like, wait a minute, does that really say that? Like, so I would definitely just take. I would read him with a grain of salt, and I would. Definitely read your Bible, first and foremost. Yeah. yeah okay. Hmm. Uh, okay, I'm almost done. <laughs> I'm okay. there. Um, what's the difference between a cherub and an angel? I heard you somewhere that they're not the same. 
saying that they're not the same exactly? Well, I thought an they angel were. just an angel uh, by definition is a word that means messenger. So sometimes even men are referred to as angels in the scripture. You have to yeah. look at the context. But if you're talking about different types of heavenly beings, you have stuff like the cherubim versus the seraphim versus the ophanim. And these are all described in the book of Enoch as well as Revelation and Ezekiel. And they're all different, seemingly different types of creations of, of heavenly messengers, heavenly uh, servants of God. And the cherubim um, are supposedly the ones that directly relate to his throne and hanging out around his throne and guarding his house, his immediate house inside his overall heavenly house. Um, and so that's, yeah, same with the Ophanim. The Ophanim are also um, like his close personal bodyguards. So, okay. So, so the very Archangel powerful, high level heavenly beings that protect God or that hang out. Not that God needs protection, but like they, they, it looks like it seems to be described as if they're there to protect him and be his close personal servants. Satan was supposed to be a cherubim. No, I don't, don't, I don't see that anywhere in scripture. I know a lot of people like to take Ezekiel 28 and try to make it say that, but it doesn't say that specifically. So it's an interpretation uh, okay. of Ezekiel 28. All right. And um... to me, if I believe Genesis and Jubilees and Enoch, um, it seems as if Satan was one of the watchers that came down in the days of Jared. So he was yeah. a servant angel and he's a lower class angel. It wasn't some... I know that a lot of Christian, modern Christian churches go off of Ezekiel 28 and they try to teach that Satan was um, some like right hand of God and some sort of yeah, choir, beloved, choir minister. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a strong interpretation from that passage. Um, if you read Ezekiel 25 through 28, you see it's talking about the king of Tyre and the city of Tyre. And there's a whole historical thing there as far as the the, the island capital city of Tyre versus the land-based city of Tyre. And they had two different judgments over two different times. And the island capital was a trade capital. And you just have to, you have to, we've done a whole video on it on my channel. Um, I've watched it, but yeah. yeah, there's a, there's a lot going into it, but the, the introduction that we get of the Azazel character um, in the book of Enoch is one that's described as coming down with the, with the watchers from before the flood to interact and help mankind. He's one of them that rebelled, but it also says that he's, the one who influenced the snake in the garden under the name of Gadriel. So this is our understanding of how Enoch tries to introduce. So for example, let me put it like this, you know, in the, in the outs. Okay. So a lot of people struggle with the books uh, that were not put in the modern canons, like Enoch and Jubilees, because they mention Satan and correlate him with, with by the name Satan plus other names. And it directly tells you in some passages, like in Enoch 54 and Enoch 56 and Jubilees chapter chapter 10, that this other character that's called Azazel is Satan, or this other character called Mastima is Satan. He has many different names. And then in the scriptures that are well-known and accepted in the modern canons, like in the book of Revelation, it calls Satan the dragon and the serpent of old, right? He's also called the adversary. Um, so he's the accuser of the brethren. He's been, he gives many different names. Mastima translates to someone that's a destroyer, um, or a deceiver. And then, um, I can't remember exactly what Azazel stands for, but so the point is you see all this Hebrew literature 
and it mentions Satan by all these different names. Um, and there's lots of characters in the Bible that have more than one name. So, um, for example, uh, just amongst humans, you have uh, Moses's father-in-law. His name is Jethro, but it's also Ruel. Mount Sinai is called um, Mount Sinai, but it's also um, it's also given two other names in Scripture. You just have to look at the context and do the research, and you realize, oh, this is this is like talking about Mount Sinai, and, and then you look in the concordance, you're like, oh, this is an alternate name for Mount Sinai. I can't think of the word right now, but there's just the point I'm saying is there's lots of characters and places in Scripture where they have more than one name. And we see that in the book of Jubilees and Enoch relating to Satan character. Now, he's one of the watchers that uh, influenced the snake in the garden to tempt Eve. And he was also with the watchers that deceived mankind during the days of Jared with the other watchers. But he, specifically Azazel, gets a different punishment than the other watchers, which is why he's still on the earth. And his punishment was not ordained until the second coming of the Messiah on the day of the Lord. Yeah. So it's a... It's, okay. This is a, a this is a detail. Like you're you're asking big questions that a lot of people never dig into the details. They just take off the surface level. You know, the they're like, oh, Satan. Yeah, he must be an angel of God. So that must mean he was a really powerful one. And you're like, actually, no, he wasn't. He was like one of the lower ones, the really powerful ones. They stayed faithful. They didn't rebel. Like the seven archangels: Uriel, Raphael, you know, uh, uh, Michael, Gabriel, th those guys, they didn't rebel. They're still archangels. They're still so faithfully serving God. They have a lot more power than Azazel does, which is why at the second coming, Michael and three other powerful archangels, they wrap Satan up in a chain and lock him away for a thousand years. He did, He's not stronger than they are. He's definitely not stronger than Christ is either. So it's like, but he wants you to think that he's all powerful, you know? It seems he's all powerful because he's, you know, he has total control of um, the earth right now. <laughs> Percep perception is everything, right? What did Jesus show yeah. us when he when Satan tried to tempt Jesus that he doesn't have any power at all? No. Why didn't he just Why didn't he just kill Jesus immediately? Mm. He doesn't have the power. He doesn't. He doesn't have the legal right. He can't. He, this is why he has to manipulate men to do his bidding, because. I don't think he has the power over um, humanity either. That's why they say that um, whatever is happening in this world, they have to let us know beforehand. Yeah. What you know, whatever their evil plans are for humanity, they they are letting us know. And they and have to are, have your consent. Are, yeah, and our non-reaction mm -hmm. is taken as consent. Yeah. But they, but they do announce it somewhere. But remember, you're know, talking about the humans that have already been deceived into doing the bidding of the evil one. Yes. So even they have to warn about their plans. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but but the evil one doesn't physically do it. He gets mankind to do it to each no, other. No, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They still influence uh, people. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. If you know, that's this is my understanding of why. The other watchers from before the flood, Samiezel and all the other, uh, all the watchers under his authority, mm -hmm. they had they were locked away in Tartarus, which is severe punishment. Because you They're, believe that these angels actually had power over humans. 
No, no. They actually physically got involved. Like they, they just weren't influencing Uh, humans to do bad things. They took wives and had children. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like they physically did some stuff. And so they condemned themselves through the uncleanness. And this is explained in first Enoch chapter 15. So this is why Azazel didn't, in my understanding, he got a different punishment because he didn't do the same crimes. Because he was lesser than uh, these uh, fallen angels or that he just chose not to? I think he, that he, big he, t- he taught men deception, but he didn't physically get involved, if that makes any he, sense. It does, um, but I'm asking, he didn't get physically involved because he couldn't, because he was lesser than... No, he the, could have. He could have. He just he chose not to do that. He just He's just smart. Yeah. If I, you know, if you know that, if you know that the father could strike you or pull you, have a, have a powerful angel come grab you and take you and do other, if, because you stepped up and started actually killing people versus encouraging or leading or showing or subtly um, influencing men to give them the idea to start killing each other. You, you, I mean, you're, you're not technically involved. Yes. In Ezekiel, in first night chapter nine, Yahweh says, ascribe all sin to Azazel. He's the, he's a problem. So he's, he does get blamed, but the father's law is very consistent and the angels know his law. So he was like, I'm going to stay out of this and I'm going to influence men and teach them bad stuff. But I don't think he physically took a wife that all that punishment was shown to the other angels. They got a very different punishment. But Azazel, he doesn't get his his punishment until later. And I think there's a reason for that that's shown to us in Revelation, but that's a much deeper conversation. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to leave it here, um, Son, because it's too late for me. It's 1.30 in uh, the morning. Okay. All right. I did. I, I, I do have three more questions, but they're, they need, you know, they need discussion. They're, they're not... Um, okay. Yeah, about the Trinity and you know about some other stuff. Sure. Yeah, if you'd like in the future we could we could do another discussion. I could I would like that, yes. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I think you have an interesting perspective being from Greece and uh only having a Greek Septuagint as your Bible, because to Americans that's very that's very different. And I think it's very important uh for American believers to see that. Because we American believers think that they're in a little bubble. They don't realize that. Like there's entire believers all around the world that have a Bible, but it's not exactly the same. Like you have more books in your Bible than we do. And we've been telling people for years, we have an edited version of the Bible and people get mad when we say that, you know, and that information that you have in your Bible, if we had it in my Bible, I would have had a better understanding long time ago. Like I would have helped me out so much more way on like 20 years ago, as opposed to just seven or eight years ago. So it took me this huge learning process to figure out how we got our American Bible and how much, how many, how many books were removed from it and how the Bibles were even made over time. I didn't know any of that stuff when I was a new believer. And so I wish I had that information from the very beginning. And I probably would have had a a solid understanding on the whole Bible within less than five years of becoming a believer instead of, instead of like 20 years. So there's a lot of believers in the United States that get frustrated and they leave the church because all they get are, all they're getting is confusion and they try to read their Bible and there's, there's missing pieces there. There's things that they need. Like in that book, you mentioned second Ezra's 
there's an amazing amount of information in second address that you need to know to understand revelation, the resurrection, the all kinds of stuff. Like there, it's an amazing book and it should still be in the Bible, but it's a, it's a long story on why we have an edited version over here. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a travesty. It's a, it's a disservice to American believers. I know. I understand. I know that, you know, what can you do? I mean, you have to do it on your own. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I said it early on in this, in this uh, interview, um, Amer uh, there's a, there's an intentional effort to make Americans as dumb as possible. And we have to fight that over here. We have to fight for good education. Not just Americans, not anymore. Maybe well, that's the way we feel. True. Uh, maybe that. I'm pretty sure that was true a few decades ago, but you specifically <laughs> were being, uh, you know, attacked. But not anymore. Not anymore. No. Whatever is happening to the U.S. now is happening everywhere. I, I see it in Europe. That's good. Oh, you mean? Exactly. Oh, hopefully you mean like the. Okay, you're talking about the 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 oppression attempts, but I I was thinking about the internet and allowing people to have knowledge, and be able to interact with people ah, from other countries like yes. we're doing today, and because I've you know we've been able to see from our YouTube channel we see people from all over the world following our YouTube channel, you know yeah. from Australia to New Zealand to you know people in Estonia, like I mean all over the place you know um, no one in China I don't think they I don't think they allow our content in China. But um, all over the I place. I wouldn't think so. No. Yeah, South America to South Africa to Russia, and so it's a it's a privilege and it's an honor to be able to to have access to share these ideas and encourage believers all across the world. It it really makes us happy. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate. Uh, thanks for sorry for the confusion on the timing and uh, okay. appreciate you doing this. Uh, can you stay just um, one minute after um, I stop the recording? Sure. All right. sure. Thank you. Okay, I I stopped my hand. Um, I just I just wanted to make sure that I I will receive that um email with uh, the list, the books that um. Yeah. You said, huh? I am copying it right now for you. Thank you. And okay, these are all the books that we're going to put into our contextual study guide we've been working on. Okay. And um, some of them you already have in your Bible, but some of them were found specifically among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then other ones were put into like Armenian Bibles and Ethiopian Bibles, and you know, but. To me, these all have the same consistent theology. They teach the same thing, and they point to the same gospel of the kingdom, right. which was the message of all the prophets. So right. I think they'll all be edifying. Okay. And I just I just wanted your personal opinion, but I didn't want it to be public. What's your um, opinion about um, the YouTube channel of uh, God's Culture? I'm sure you know it. It's very big in the Philippines. It is. Um I don't know everything they teach. People have been sending me their videos for probably three years to, to analyze because they make a lot of claims. I did watch one of their videos they did on the garden of Eden where they claimed it was in the Philippines. And mm -hmm. I'm sure the I'm sure the people in the Philippines really love that, <laughs> but, but there's a lot of problems with that theory. And, um, 
but I've never made you're any talk, videos. You're talking about the, um, the river um, from Eden, that yeah. video. Yeah, they, they go off of a, a book called The Book of Adam and Eve um, to make their theory uh, in that video. And uh, we, we, do, we, do, we do not see historic or theological validation that that book is accurate or should be scripture at all. We see no. a lot of problems well, with the book I, I've of read it. Why? Can you give me just um, one I, example? Well, for one, it, for uh, giving the location of the biblical creation as well as the location of the Garden of Eden in comparison to Genesis and Jubilees. Which, so it directly contradicts um, that information about the Garden of Eden with Genesis and Jubilees. And so there's other things in there. In fact, we did a whole breakdown on it. I have a show that we do with Ken Heidebrecht. It's called Honor of Kings. And we go over the Book of Adam and Eve and other books. And so if you go to my YouTube channel and you go to um, my I've playlist, seen that um, playlist, yeah. But I haven't uh, seen what uh, Yeah, seen it's in season three. Video. Yeah, in ah, season okay. three. Of Honor season of Kings, three, yes. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we go over the book of Adam and Eve and uh, talk and I give a breakdown of like the 12 different reasons why we found that there's some issues with it and that we would not consider it scripture. But um, all these um, as, um, books now, their books, they were finding um, along with uh, the rest of um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not the book of Adam and Eve. Not, not that book. Yeah, it's a I much later it book. Yeah, Book of Adam and Eve is like fifth, sixth century AD. That's the latest that they have. That's but even if it, even if it were like, we don't know who compiled the library of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we don't know what their beliefs are. So just because they put you know Genesis and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Enoch and Jubilees in a collection together, we don't know who these people were, you know. And so that's why you have to look at each book that they find and try to test it to. This is, this is our approach, is that we test it to the Deuteronomy 13 test, as well as the majority of the other texts that we have that are all consistent and preach the same message of the resurrection, the kingdom come, obedience to God's word, you know, that kind of stuff, the, the basics, the core, you know. And so when you start finding books like Adam and Eve, where that starts going into, by the way, there's contradictions in the book of Adam and Eve just inside the book that are yes, pretty yes, bad. Yes, there are. There are. Pretty yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it, it was so, a bit confusing. And there's another one, and it also talks about Satan showing up and living on the earth and having domain over the earth before. Yes, yeah, so taking human for, um, human form and deceiving them and um, well, no, burying no, them. Yeah, well, not specifically that he could take human form. That we see angels can do that anyway, but in in all of Scripture. But it's the timeline of the creation model, like we talked about today. Book of Adam and Eve doesn't place angels um, in heaven coming down to minister in the garden to mankind. And mankind ruling over the earth. The, the book Garden, the Book of Adam and Eve claims that Satan has dominion over the earth and had already rebelled out of heaven before Adam and Eve were placed on the earth. It's a totally different origin story for mankind and for um, Satan himself. And it, it's not congruent with Job. It's not congruent with Genesis or Jubilees or Enoch. So um, we would. All right, guys. I hope you all enjoyed that tonight. I want to. Thank you guys who stayed for the the entire three hours um, or three plus hours. Hopefully, it was a blessing to you. Uh, but yeah, it was um, it was it was nice meeting her and I appreciate all of her sincere questions. I really appreciated her demeanor. Um, she's definitely still learning. She's on the early end of trying to jump in, and you know, it's a whole bunch of information to process, a whole bunch of bad teachings to try to overcome and find you know weed through uh, to find the you know the the details is really what it what this where you become studied and approved, you know, the details. So I hope that um, it encouraged all of us 
to see all the different aspects in just one conversation. You can see all the different aspects of bad traditions of the church, of false religions, of, of just basic misunderstandings from people reading a few verses and not reading the whole thing. And hopefully encourage us to say, look, we've got to, you know, we've got to be studied in this. You know, you would never pick up any other book. Um, think of a think of a book. Think of like a classical book, right? Like Romeo and Juliet. You would never pick up Romeo and Juliet and just read a couple couple lines from chapter four and then a couple lines from chapter sixteen. You know, you would never do that and then think that you actually are familiar with the story. You wouldn't you wouldn't know who the Capulets are and the Montagues. You wouldn't know who the priest is and what he gave them at the end and all that. You you wouldn't understand any of it. So for whatever reason, we've been encouraged to do that with the Bible as believers, and that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. You know, we can't do that. Uh, we have to actually read the book and study it, look up the definitions of words, check out the whole text, and maybe compare a couple chapters in that book or compare, you know, if that thing, if that concept's mentioned in a different book in the same Bible, and just see and get a well-rounded approach to understanding these ideas so that we're not falling prey to repeating really bad misunderstandings. Um, I know a lot of you that watch our channel, I've been following us for a while now, and you understand that concept. You're, you know, you're diligent to study the Word with us. We, we love that. But if you're new, um, here at Kingdom in Context, we, just, we have our own literal contextual study guide that we're working on. Uh, you may be able to see that in the video description if you're interested. You probably saw the commercial at the beginning of the show as well. And um, we're going through all 100 plus books and putting them together as a contextual study guide. We independently published the book of First Enoch by itself with all the different uh, context themes that are color-coded throughout it. You can pick that up on Amazon if you'd like as well. Um, as you can see here, it's, uh, it's available on Amazon, and uh, people are, we're getting a lot of good reviews from that, helping people understand concepts like the, you know, the Day of the Lord, which is the return of the King, helping people understand the covenants, helping people understand the idea of the resurrection, and what, what is agency, what are the Nephilim, all this kind of stuff that's all layered in all these books. We're trying to give you a, a comprehensive contextual study guide. If you are been following along as one of our patrons at the family tier level, we just released both Tobit, First Timothy. We're dropping Second Timothy tomorrow. And so you can access those plus another 13 or 14 books that we've already put on our previous posts on the Patreon timeline that you can download those PDFs before it's published, right? So we're working through 100 plus books of scripture. And then when we're all done, we're going to publish them all as one single manuscript. But in the meantime, right now, if you want early access, you can do that as a part of the family tier on our Patreon. And that allows you to go through those posts and download the PDFs of them so you can have them already to study. So you're welcome to do that if you're interested. And um, other than that, we really appreciate you guys. We hope this was a blessing tonight. And uh, go go check out uh, Free Float on BitChute. Her uh, link is in the video description below. And uh, I think she's got some really other cool interviews on there. And she seems like she's, uh, she's genuine to learn good information. So we want to support her in that. But uh, thanks, guys. We appreciate you all. And we'll see you next time.